Drive All Night is supported by listeners like you. To find out how you can help, please visit patreon.com slash songsoftoriamus. There you'll learn what exciting rewards we're offering for your support. Again, that's patreon.com slash songsoftoriamus to help us continue to make high-quality and Torytainment for you. Well, I think, you know, mythologically, Venus represents to me the conscious and unconscious feminine. Uh-huh. So both things have to exist, not just the things, not just the love space and all that kind of orbits that, right. but the darkest places when you're severed right. from your heart, that had to exist too. So the extremes exist on the record. Hey everybody, you're listening to Drive All Night, the songs of Tori Amos. We are your hosts, I'm Efren Jr. And I'm David Anderson. And on this episode, we're talking about Juarez, the second track from Tori's fifth album, To Venus and Back. you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Do you know how committed I am to our recording process and how method I am? How committed are you? I'm so committed that I have turned off my air conditioning to prevent any kind of noise interference, but also to create the atmosphere of the desert. It's dry Mm. and extremely hot in here, so. You are a professional. Yeah. You are method. Mm -hmm. The rhythm method. You have your air blasting and you're like running ice cubes down your cleave. You're like, not me. You're like Meryl Streep. You can just walk in and do it. I have like a whole thing I have to go through. No, I don't have it blasting. I keep it set to a crisp 60 degrees uh-huh. so i've got i'm constantly surrounded by cool air yes when you dial it down to 69 do you always chuckle to yourself in a self-satisfied way and say like oh me 69 no because 70 still seems hot you know yeah 70 to me might as well be 79 which is might as well be 80 so let's keep it at 69 and let's not speak about it yeah i was gonna say do you, you think know? that's true of the aging process too yes once you hit 70s it's time to close up shop I, I didn't say that. No, 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 no. Keep the shop open. Keep the shop open as long as you want. I'm just talking about the heat, David. All right. Well, I hope we finish all these episodes before we hit 70. Seems unlikely, but <laughs> we'll try it. I think we are going to finish these faster than people realize because Bliss just came out recently. And now you're listening to Juarez, people. <laughs> yeah. What month is it? I can't commit to a date. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> not on the air. You won't, you won't catch me like that. It's already slipping away. Catch me if you can. I'm not up to running. How do you feel about the song, David? I would have never believed that we would be sitting here in 2022 talking about Juarez as the opening song of a tour 
and such a prescient song, such a present song in this modern day. I can't believe it. What about you? I can believe it because I believe anything. I am accepting of the gifts that the world gives me. <laughs> I'm just, you know, I'm open. I'm an open person. It's I'm true. sorry. I'm an I've, open person. I've never known you to look a gift horse in the mouth. You're always like, I'll take it. I'll take it. Absolutely. I like to be surprised. Every time someone says they love me, I'm like, you do? <laughs> I, I just like to stay open and ready for yeah. anything. You're kind of like the polar yeah. opposite of Oprah. Thank you. I appreciate that. I really appreciate it. You like surprises. She hates a surprise. When people tell her they love her, she's like, I know. But you know what? I am the exact same as Oprah. Don't surprise me on the air. Don't surprise me in a studio in front of a camera. No. That's true. No, 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 no. I need to know where the show's going. I need to know who the guests are. (laughs) Yeah. Which is a little odd to me because we were just talking off air and you told me that you have the gift of sight. I said foresight. Well, I heard what I wanted to hear, (laughs) as always. Most of us have the gift of sight. I was like, you can pierce the veil? Cool. Yeah, I have the (laughs) gift of foresight. Okay. I can see ahead to how things will fall apart if I don't do one thing a certain way. Yeah. Anyhow, let's address the title. Let's use this act to address the title. Okay. Okay. I come from Las Cruces, New Mexico, which is a town in the Southwest region. And the three sister cities are El Paso, Juarez, and Las Cruces. And it's within 45 minutes of my house where I grew up is Mexico. And I've always had a problem in New Mexico growing up. They wouldn't let you speak Spanish. Spanish in school. So my very first language was Spanish. My mom's mom would babysit me back in the early days when I was a really young child and I grew up speaking Spanish. I was fluent in Spanish before I knew English. And then when you got into when I got into school, elementary school, they kind of beat that Spanish literally, spanked that Spanish out of you. You weren't allowed to speak Spanish in New Mexico. It was a one language state and it was very there's a lot of like covert that's not even covert, but there's a lot of covert racist tactics there, but it's like a an almost entirely Latino population so the caste system is different or like the class system is different it's a thing you know it's like a the way the kind of caste system is sort of broken down it's like people who speak exclusive spanish are looked at in this almost entirely latino town in my opinion or as i was growing up people who only speak spanish were looked at as low class people who only spoke english were looked at as the upper class and like kind of how your accent told what class you were in and so the whiter quote-unquote or the more proper quote-unquote quote you sounded it really just determined your path or the way people would treat you unfortunately and so i lost all of my spanish and that's why i talk the way i talk that's why i sound the way i sound so they wouldn't allow you to speak spanish in school so it kind of got beat out of me to the point where i have a psychological barrier that prevents me from fully becoming fluent in spanish and i've tried many many times since then since i've come to terms with like what happened in my childhood and the fact that like me speaking spanish well is more up in my head than it is in like my tongue you know it's more in my mind so the fact that this song is called Juarez because she sings it that way but I grew up near a town called Juarez it's hard for me to just call the song Juarez even though that's the name of the song it's really hard for me to marry my thoughts on speaking the language with this song it's been a very difficult journey I do appreciate you telling that story that is heartbreaking I hate to hear that are we establishing how are we going to say it for the rest of this episode. I think we should say Juarez because that's what she says. Okay. Can you believe we now live in a country where people don't want their children to have to hear that gay people exist, but atrocities like this were happening? 
Truly, it's easier for me to learn French and German than it is for me to speak Spanish fluently, and it's really sad. Mm-hmm. Well, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, and we're cousins to Las Cruces. Everyone says that. We're not sisters, but we're cousins. <laughs> yeah. Cousins from another dozens. <laughs> cousins from another Emily Cousins. Oh my God, I can't believe oh my God. I finally got to meet Emily Cousins on tour. Isn't she a gem? She is a gem. She shines bright like a diamond. She is utter delight. True. We had just such a good time talking before and after every show. Oh. And then she had to fly back to Iowa. She's like, I needed there. I have a band in my post i'm assuming she has a lot of Mm. responsibilities i don't know exactly what i think those are but but she abandoned them for us thank you emily she did and then she abandoned us it's hard to have it all how do you feel about the song do you love the song what are your personal thoughts i love the song now more than ever particularly after the ocean to ocean tour i feel like it kind of slipped through the cracks for me Initially, when Venus came out, just because, as per usual, that album was an embarrassment of riches, I think the production and kind of all the distortion on the vocal, it takes a while to open itself up to you. It's not as singable, let's say, as some of the other songs on the album. So I think it went a little unnoticed by me compared to some of the others anyway. What did you think about it the first time you heard it? I had gotten myself into a second track will define the album for me sort of feeling. It started with Blood Roses, I think, because Blood Roses was so raucous and so different than Beauty Queen Horses, you know, that I really understood when I was listening to Boys for Pele for the first time that she was setting up the world with the first track. And then like the second track was us getting into it. And then it happened with Cruel as well with my friend Liz standing in the doorway of my bedroom saying, I'm really pleased with Tori Amos right now. And it just kind of that world opened up with Cruel. I was ready for Juarez to tell me everything it needed to tell me. I was ready for it. And I loved it. I, t- I love that vocal production. You know I love it when it's messy and dirty. And I love when Tori's like got a beat behind her. And this is probably like one of the most experimental tracks that she had done up to that point track two i hadn't yet heard Daytura, but you know like i loved it from the first minute i heard it true love i've always loved this song your love still burns bright huh it really does it's amazing what you can pull off with three notes blink 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 is that what you're talking about yeah <laughs> ding 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 i can see what you're saying like why it would have fallen through the cracks for you just because it was never a single it wasn't like a upfront banger you know it didn't lead the charge it was just the quiet girl in the back yeah it's a backdoor banger Yeah. (laughs) And take it from someone who knows. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think aside from the production and kind of the sonic quality of it, it's also at this point in her career, this was like a rare instance of storytelling when something feels like it's not her story that has like a different perspective and a point of view. And we've sort of talked about that with like Little Amsterdam maybe, but it felt less personal or at least not in such an obvious way. So I think that made it harder for me to access it too. Oh, interesting. At the end when she says no angel came and particularly live, it opened itself up to me that it was incredibly personal in a way that I felt bad for like kind of missing before with the no angel came part. Mm-hmm. So, and we'll get into it in the live section, but when the no angel came for my little girl stuff, like it was just like, oh God, gutting. It gutted me. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's save it for the line by Fine. line. Fine. I won't then. That, that was to me mostly because I was wanting to chime oh. in there. But Yeah, don't get ahead of me, David. I'm walking slow because I have a busted knee. Oh my God. You don't want to walk to Juarez then. I guess when we're talking about the song, we should call it Juarez. And when I'm talking about the town, I'll call it Juarez because that's how I know it. And that's how I would say it. But back in the day, and I recall, I'm just going to, I'm going to come forward with my open heart and I'm going to reveal my greatest shame in the Torium's community. Well... 
one of them. Back when this track listing was released in 1999, I've never said this out loud in a public forum. When this track listing was released, people were looking at it like, what's a concertina? And what is a detura? Like there were all these weird words that people didn't know, you know, and we were looking them up. And people were like, what's a Juarez or Jawarez with a little accent? And I said, well, Juarez. And I posted this in some forum. It must have been at forums. I posted it like Juarez is a town in Mexico. It's about 45 minutes from where I live. And they have $7 drink and drown nights. And their drinking age is 18. So we always go down there and we get drunk for $7. That was my association with that town. Again, you can imagine being excised from the language in like a completely Latino community. It wasn't hard to be excised from what was going on. Like I was also young and naive and I didn't know anything that was going on. So my instant relation to the song was as like, it was a party town and I had no idea why, you know, I thought it was going to be something in that area. But then when people were like, actually, this is what's happened. And then there were news articles that they would link to in these forums. I realized my folly. Oh, interesting. So if you had ventured a guess as to what the song was going to sound like, just based on the track listing, the title, what were you imagining? I was imagining, you know, it was going to be some sort of dancey, sort of a electronica thing, because she was going towards that, you know, in so many ways. So Scarlet Spectrum feels maybe I thought it was going to be something like that, you know. That's not too far off. And it's really not, honestly. And it's just the emotional core I had completely wrong. (laughs) And I'm embarrassed about it still to this day. After almost 30 years, after 29 years, I don't think we've gotten any better at guessing what a song is going to sound like when we get the track listing. (laughs) We're very good at weaving really elaborate fantasies, and then it's usually nothing like we imagine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Doesn't stop us from doing it. Just based on the titles on Ocean Ocean, what was going to be your favorite one? What did you think was going to be your favorite one? Well, you know, this is one that I may have actually gotten right. I just thought Metalwater Wood was going to seem kind of like witchy or like um, some like invocational almost, which I'm not sure that turned out to be true, but it is a favorite. It is a favorite. Yeah. But now I call it Metal Water Bottle because that's what she was selling. Metal Water Bottle? That's what she was selling at the merch stand. Uh-huh. The metal Water Should Bottle. You really feel like that song was just written as a jingle to sell water bottles? No, she, I don't think she wrote it as a jingle to sell water bottles, but she missed the boat. She missed the boat. She could have sold cornflakes. Always was a cornflake girl. Just change one lyric. Done. She could have made a million dollars. Yeah. She could have sold Metal Water Bottles. What other things could she have sold? What God. is downtown publishing doing? Exactly. What are they doing? They need to get her songs licensed for commercials and ad campaigns can you imagine if Mm -hmm. it was like chicken's almost done now it's time to make stuff and line that horizon up like you don't (laughs) (laughs) and the song flavor really lends itself to any food or beverage product that's true oh my god she wrote like a fill in the blank and handed it over to any like advertising agencies like use this for anything that tastes good (laughs) that tastes like anything raining flavor (laughs) right doesn't even have to be good it just doesn't taste like something (laughs) someone puts their finger in the icing mmm icing flavor mm. (laughs) see she's missed the boat on a lucrative career (laughs) jingle advertisement should we talk about our guests on this episode first and get into our patreon supporters lord please let's move on that's what i'm trying to do warm it up chris today i'm very excited because we have a conversation with a man (laughs) a man (laughs) a man i don't know how i feel about a man invading like our slumber party vibe that we always have on this show (laughs) in this episode we have a super fan of juarez and his name is danny onchando we actually recorded this interview before tour and i actually met him on tour and he's lovely he's so great and we're gonna play that in the middle of the show 
Shall we say hello to our Patreon supporters, David? Hello. 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 Hello to Sarah Claus. Welcome back. Sarah Sylvia Cynthia Claus. Would not take the patrons out. <laughs> Would not take her Patreon out. It loses a little something when it doesn't rhyme, but okay, sure. <laughs> Hello to new patron Stefania Hoffman. Yes, Anna Stefania. We'll see how brave you are. Mm-hmm. We'll see how fast we'd be vibing. Welcome back to patron J.M. Solomon. Song of Solomon Part 2, now known as Take Me With You. <laughs> Take Me With You, J.M. Hello to new patron Charles Outier or Uthier. And Uthier till his wedding day. Beautiful. Hello to new patron John Shank. Shank. John. I, I got one. I got one. His name is John. Hello to new patron Skektek Huff. It could be Huff. Huff. Yeah. Before sundown, the Skektek's leaving Santa and Zone. That was weak. I came up with that one. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, I think, it was, I think it was really good. I was at a loss. Sorry. Hello to new patron W. Heard you had a double U. A double U. Said you had a double U. <laughs> Hello to new patron Court. Not to be confused with the court from Trial by Jury. Right. Or Court and Spark. Oh, thank God. Mm. You don't want anything to do with Court and Spark. Although, you know, that's a Tory reference to Court and Spark. Together they make a Joni oh. Mitchell album. <laughs> oh, thank you, Court, for bringing your court to our Spark. I object. Hello to new patron Steven Singerman. Steven the Wind calls your name. Hello to Carbon658, new patron. Thank you. Mm, that's such like an AOL-era name. I love it. Carbon658. Here's one from me to you, Mr. Fat Man. The Eternal Fat Man. Eternal, fa Eternal Fat Man. Sorry. I don't even know my own name. Oh, Virginia. Hello to new patron Julie Roche. I'll wear my naughties like a Julie Roche. <laughs> Roshan to Roshan. Hello to new patron. Zeno Saga is just the origin story of Robo Vanessa. That's their name. And I don't know how we can work that into a song. So hello to Zeno Saga. Just hi. 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 <laughs> hi. hi. How, how are you? How are you doing? Everything good? <laughs> Welcome back to Jen Teachworth. We love seeing your name. Maybe a bright Sandy Teachworth is going to bring you back. And you came back. Okay. And last but not least, welcome back to Lauren. We love seeing you. You got you a fast horse, Lauren. <laughs> Dar Lauren. 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 Maybe it's a DeLorean. As always, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, new and recurring. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you so much for your support. If you didn't hear your name, but you think you should be on this list, and you didn't hear your name last week either, and you think you should be on this list, please let us know. I may have made an error. I'm only human. Mm, flesh and blood. Court and Spark. Of course, we couldn't do anything that we are doing without the love and support of our dear friend, Shay Stymack. Shay Stymack does what she do so that we can do what we does. <laughs> Thank you to Shay. Shay do be like that. Shay do be do be do. <laughs> don't even bat an eye if the eagle cries the Rasta man Shays. I don't think you even know what you think you just shayed. Shay, 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 Shay. <laughs> Shade have been over for me. <laughs> There's a time to keep it up, Shay. <laughs> Thank you, Shay, for everything that you do. In case it needs to be said, this whole episode, trigger warning for this whole episode, themes of sexual violence. Obviously, as we get through the quotes and the line by line, we'll have to speak of those things. So just be warned that that's coming. Since there are no covers of Juarez, 
by anybody out there. And honestly, why not? Can we? Can you take it upon yourselves? We are working hard on these episodes. All we ask of you, the public, is to cover each of these songs. So we have something to play in this section. Yeah. But instead of that, we're going to honor the musicians and the music of Mexico and Juarez during this episode. So Yes, I think this is a great idea. And by the way, can we put out a call for covers now? Because I feel like as we progress through the catalog, they might become more and more rare. Like, how are we going to celebrate the music of the Maids of Elfenmere? There's no cover <laughs> of it. <laughs> for now, we're going to celebrate the music of Laurel Meets the Obsolete with their song Lineas in Ojas, which we'll link to on our show notes page, songsoftoriamus.com. I wanted to ask you one more question um, about women in crisis. You put together the Rain Network a few years back, and I just got a call the other day from a woman who said, "Look, I'm outdoors. I've got a job. I don't want a Christmas turkey, but I've got four kids who I'm I'm taking, you know, from house to house, and I'm sleeping in my car because uh, you know my marriage is ending and my credit is is ruined and so forth. And I didn't have the time at that time to delve into her personal life and and find out more, so I knew where to to send her for help. Uh, so I did what I could with that that bit of information, but what can people do? Uh, is that still set up, the RAIN network? Of course, it's there, and there are people, counselors that are there to talk to people all the time about It's RAIN stands for the Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network, and sometimes it's, you know, it's not as if... I've had women come up to me and say, I don't feel like I'm eligible to call, but I'm ready to just jump off a bridge because I don't know how to deal with the thing that I'm that happened to me. Mm-hmm. And... I do find a lot of women start to rank their experience. Well, you know, I wasn't, I didn't put my head in an oven, you know, get um, raped for seven years. It's like, that's not what this is about. This is about their people there to talk to. You know, rapists actually call in and say, I'm afraid I'm going to strike again. Absolutely. They deal with all sorts of people that are calling. And if you're going to have a phone line, you have to be available to deal with that person on the other line. Right. Pain is a subjective thing, not an objective thing. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the number? 1-800-656-HOPE. Okay. 
Juarez appears as the second track on Tori's fifth album to Venus and Back, Orbiting, Disc A, which was released on September 20th, 1999 in the UK and September 21st, 1999 in the US. It was released on double CD, cassette, but not vinyl. Still hasn't been. How dare she? And I'm still jealous of your double jewel case version of To Venus and Back. You can find it on eBay. That's too much work. I'm just going to covet. From afar? Yeah. And not do anything about it? Nope. I'd prefer to complain. Oh, okay. For the rest of my life. (laughs) For those of you listening, though, there is a buy it now option for To Venus and Back on eBay right now, which doesn't mean it'll be there when this comes out. It's only $10. Oh, really? That's $5 per jewel. So if you wanted a double jewel case version, yeah, go get it. Free four-day shipping from a top-rated seller. That sounds like I'm selling it, right? Yeah. (laughs) No, it's definitely not me. Too good to be true. I'm just reading eBay as part of my daily routine. When Juarez came back in 2022 as the opener, and everybody was saying, oh, this was a big surprise that it was opening the shows because it was so rare. Yes, relatively up to that point, 84 Spoiler alert, 84 times had been played, and it was rare, but it wasn't that rare. And as a hunted song, it was incredibly common because the next time we hear from Juarez, it appears on not one, not two, but nine legs and boots. Mm. All is Clyde. And so you can't call something rare anymore when it has appeared on, at this point, 10 different separately released pieces of official Toremus merchandise. You're right about that. Yeah, there are other songs that have appeared on less that you wouldn't call rare. So it's never occurred to me that people considered Juarez a rare track. Mm -hmm. But it was Syracuse, Boston, Buffalo, Milwaukee, Lawrence, Melbourne, Houston, Boise, and Phoenix. Dropped off the engine down Warren Hills. Don't even find an eye who cracks the rocks to mountains. Just cause the desert likes young girls flesh. Looking at the dates, they were all pretty close together, which I guess makes sense because she just rotated through the doll lineup. And once this became a Clyde song, it was a staple. So It's true. It was a staple, but she didn't rotate in any predictable way. Mm. I remember during 2007 trying to predict based on just straight up facts and couldn't do it. What kind of facts? Facts. Like when was the last time Isabel came out? When was the last time Pip came out? When was the last time Clyde came out? Santa. And then trying to predict who would be out that night. There was never any pattern. If you could find a pattern, please tell us. Scholars for 15 years have been looking, David. No, you really couldn't. I found it to be more accurate to try to predict based on the city, like the vibe of the city, like which doll was the best fit, as opposed to when was the last time she appeared as whatever. I absolutely agree with that. I think that's a very smart choice. And when you look back on it, that's more accurate. Mm Mm-hmm how she would do things. Like there's something so right about San Antonio getting Isabel, right? Oh yeah. And I felt the same way about, you know, I went to the Portland, Oregon show that to me was clearly going to be an Isabel show. And by the same token, yeah. Seattle was Pip. Yeah. Cause that's where we rock. Seattle's where we I rock. Know. Yeah. I do want to say, and I normally will wait until our wrap up episode to put everything in the wrap up episode, but we received a comment from Joe Olson. Oh yeah. Hi Joe. Anyhow, we had question in the last episode. If anybody out there knows why, why or has a reason that they believe is the reason why Tori performed Bliss as Pip. He had a reason and it sounds good. Do you want to hear it? Do you want to hear it? Yeah, I sure do. 
Bliss, he says, has big patriarchy energy with Father I Killed My Monkey, and Pip's blog, which I still have bookmarked, was all about her trying to figure out what happened to her dad. So I think it was connected in 2007 to why Bliss was given to Pip. I think why Tori did it a lot as Tori also is that it's one of her shorter band songs that can easily slide into a set without taking up too much time. As good as any explanation I've ever heard. That last one is a little less compelling than the first part, but absolutely, <laughs> but I think it's true. Thanks for that, Joe. I love that, especially the reference to Pip's blog. I will admit to my ignorance of the doll blogs. I certainly don't remember what any of them said, so I'm going to have to revisit that. Excuse me? You heard me. I said I'm admitting my ignorance. You knew they existed, though, right? I knew they existed, but I don't remember what okay. the content was. Well, see, right around the exact same time that they existed is the exact same time decided to troll, and I'm ca- I'm saying his name in spaces he's not in, <laughs> decided to troll the community by creating fake, fake doll blogs. I don't think I knew that either. So you never knew if you were bookmarking a real blog or a fake blog. They all sounded fake, but also kind of real. <laughs> oh, right, because it was an Easter egg hunt, right? Yeah. Uh, oh my God, I've never gotten a chance to play this sound clip. Roll yeah. it, Oliver. <laughs> hey there, this is Tori. So by now you may have heard about American Doll Posse. I wanted to officially introduce you to the girls. They will all be going on tour. We're out shopping right now, and I can't keep a hold of a one of them. They'd love to get to know you. They've all heard so much about you. You can look for them online. They will all be accessible if you can find their blogs, which they update frequently. Instead of an Easter egg hunt this season, I'm hosting a posse hunt. Happy hunting. I love that sound clip. Play it every damn chance you get. I'm already telling you, that is the first sound clip you will hear in the Doll Posse season. Uh, I believe (laughs) it. I've been sitting on that for years. Uh To shine a little bit more light on what Joe said, here is a PIP blog, an official PIP blog post entitled Photograph, dated June 22nd, 2007. Sit back and relax. Imagine it's 2007. The bottle is empty. I'm still sober. The dawn intrudes a welcome intrusion. I'm trying to piece it together. I imagined my father at the performance last night. There's something in me that's convinced sometime, somewhere in his life he has been in Congress Hall. I rocked that fucker last night with every beat. With every pounding, I was searching faces, convinced the ghost of my father was staring back at me. 30 minutes before I went on, a note had made its way backstage. Some local security guy stopped me in the hall backstage saying, are you the one they call Pip? That would be correct, I said. He passed me a small envelope. I didn't take it at first. I asked him, who gave this to you? An older looking woman, he said. She didn't have a ticket. She passed it to my colleague outside. I'm staring at it now. It's a picture of my father and my mother from 1989 taken after Vaclav Havel became president. (laughs) Neither of them has ever mentioned to me that they were here together. What consumes me more than anything about the photograph is how full of life the two of them were. He's cocky, and she's beaming. Obviously, they're playing to camera, having a drink and times full of promise. All the note said was, he is missed by many. We share in your grief in ways you'll never know. Give my love to your mother, Petra. Some people are waking to greet the day in another city that I'm sure holds more secrets. So that blog entry was written on June 22nd, 2007, and she did play Bliss the night before in Prague, but she played it as Tori even though she went on as Pip. And then that night, she went on as Clyde and also played Bliss as Tori. So, big Bliss energy. Instead of father who art in heaven, it's father I killed my monkey. 
We never see Juarez again in Tori's catalog, ever again, like mm. officially released. Do you think if she was compiling an updated version of a piano, she would add Juarez this time? Oh, yeah, of course. Now, after having played it so many times. Mm-hmm. But we do see it again on 2024's triple live album chronicling the three separate Ocean to Ocean legs. The first leg in the UK and North America, the second leg in Europe and the UK again, and the third leg in the United States, summer 2023. Each leg gets its own double CD. So it's actually a six CD box set and it does appear on that one. Mm. This is us manifesting and speaking things into existence, I presume. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. The triple what double else box should we conjure? set. Um, this is the follow-up to a piano, a Kurzweil. On <laughs> <laughs> Nord. An out-of-tune harpsichord. The first time we hear Juarez, though, we never talked about this in all 10 minutes that we've been talking. The first time we hear from Juarez is in an early version at a sound check in Evanston, Illinois in 1998 on October 29th. Listen to this, y'all. Interesting. Which reminds me of the time that she played it sort of mixed in with Siren. Do you remember that? In 98. Mm-hmm. Roll that, Ollie. It's interesting how these things come just randomly. I don't know. Something I love to do is to find those nuggets. We love an origin story when the first chicky nuggy of a song appears to Tori. Mmm, chicky nuggy. <laughs> do you think she takes barbecue sauce or honey mustard on her? I lines? think she likes sweet and sour. That's what she would say. Tori, what kind of condiment are you? Mmm, I'm not for everybody. I'm a little bit of sweet and sour. <laughs> A little bit of buffalo and ranch. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Why don't we start with our quotes? Are you ready to quote it up, David? Quote me. Okay, I will. This is from SonicNetMTV.com, an online chat. August 17th, 1999. They had computers back then? But no one knew what to do with them. 
Anime Angel 1999 asks Tatori, You brought up the new album, which is called To Venus and Back. It will be out September 21st, I believe. What's up with the new album and what kind of sound is it? Cut to the chase. Is it more computer driven or stripped down? So tell us about the album. Now, it's important to remember this was before anyone had heard anything. This hadn't even really officially been released to radio yet, even though some radio stations were playing it. So chances are Anime Angel 1999 had not heard a single thing and was curious to know, are we going back to the piano? Yeah. And Tori says, well, it's not really stripped down. It's very tricky to describe something that's in the ether, you know? There's rhythm for me. When I started talking about the Venus record, I started thinking about, she was sort of dragging me to the plate going, if you're going to sing about the passion, you've got to sing about the other side, which is when someone is sort of severed from their heart. So the record started to, there are 11 songs on it. And there are some songs that have such faith that you could find somebody again that dies and you are able to, even if they become a baby in another woman's tummy, you know that there's this closeness, as close as I am to you on some other plane. There are also songs that were inspired by things that where people are completely cut off from their heart. And there are over 200 women who have been raped in Juarez. When I was in the bus near Texas, near the border, it's strange because I kind of dragged out of my bunk and went to the front and it was dark. And the song really said to me, you know, you have to sing this from the point of view of the desert because the desert heard the last breath that the young woman took and the desert heard the breath of the killer and it became really important when I would just try and hear what I would sing that there would be a strange antithesis from me and a gun because me and a gun was very much about the girl's perspective that was going through that in her head and this was coming from the perspective that saw both sides not justifying the act at all and so as you can see the sounds on the record become characters and for all the songs I was working more with sound effects and the piano and I was playing the sign and the waveform and a lot of old keyboards bringing them in and it was just the four of us who played on it we didn't bring in any string sections i love doing that but we just kept it a very small nucleus you'll hear it it's a lot i love describing and i don't think it's ever been so clear at least in a way that i can understand it maybe she has been clear about other songs before but when she talks about things as characters or singing it from the desert this makes complete sense to me that she wanted it to come it wasn't the perspective of the girl it wasn't the perspective of the men it was the perspective of the land that existed the setting you know it was the music of the setting this line woven through the earth almost so that makes complete sense to me like the words that she says make complete sense to me and then i hear it in the song I hear it totally in the song. And that's kind of why I feel like it has that strange, that unique rhythm that you wouldn't really find in another Tory song, but it's definitely like present. I see the total link. What do you think? Yeah. And something else that this quote brings clarity to for me is I see this album as being cinematic in a way that maybe the first four weren't. And to me, that's kind of like the progression of diary, impressionist painting, novel, you know, whatever we would say. I feel like this is a cinematic album and that she's revisiting themes from the past from a different perspective. And in some cases, like Juarez, it's less personal or she's sort of going to the other side of the camera jumping over that line now seeing it from let's say the perspective of the desert and i would say that's where the camera is placed and i feel like that also goes to the way she's described the album as a whole with the camera circling the heart yeah i think she's revisiting some of these themes from a different point in her life now but also from a kind of more broad perspective or a more universal perspective that she's a little more detached from does that make sense Totally. And it's really interesting that the antithesis or the opposite perspective of Me and a Gun, which arguably is her most personal song, that the antithesis of that or the revisitation of that becomes what you just described as like a really deeply not personal song. Mm. It's just interesting.
upsetting that she's going so far that she's not taking the other person's perspective. It's just the neutral perspective of the territory. Mm, totally. Yeah. Which may be at this point where she is in that journey. You know, we're coming at this episode after Tori performed Mina Gunn in Los Angeles. And when she finished that song, I just felt like it was an end for that song. I thought that, like, this may be the last time she ever performs it. When she performed Mina Gunn in Los Angeles, she had a... 2022, she had a sheet with the lyrics on it. And that made me really happy for her in a way that I can't explain entirely. But, like, she's so removed from it that the lyrics are no longer imprinted in her mind and that made me happy for her that she'd come so far from that that space where she would sing it every night and didn't ever need lyrics you know Mm. that's how i feel now hearing like that it's kind of deeply unpersonal and that it's just an opposite perspective i don't know it's i think by 1999 she had already like done the work on that what do you think yeah i hadn't thought of that but I think you're right. She wasn't doing the song anymore, really, mm-hmm. nightly. She would come back to it in a one, but... And can I just say, too, that I'm beginning to get a little more clarity for why this song and the narrative of Juarez makes sense in this album and kind of in this setting of space, for lack of a better way to put it. And by that, I mean a lot of people think of the universe as kind of cold and uncaring, and us as just kind of like, you know, meaningless specks. I don't personally believe that, but I think that's kind of in step with the perspective of the desert and maybe the desert and space are kind of interchangeable, just kind of coldly observing what's happening. Until you said that just now, I never thought this album takes place in space, but Juarez is a very specific location on earth, right? That never appeared strange to me for some reason, but what you just said, I can only take it back to having gone to Joshua Tree not too long ago and being there at night and like the quiet of Joshua Tree at night is terrifying to me, to me, the city girl, you know? <laughs> it is just black. There are no house lights. There's no street lights. There's the moon and the stars, but I mean, how much that really, like it lights up a little, I guess it lights up a lot, but like it's, you can't see anything. It's quiet. It's terrifying. It's like what I imagine being lost in space to be like, you know, from hearing what happened to Professor Nadine Davidson and his wife, whatever, John Nadine. <laughs> space sounded terrifying. Terrifying, but Joshua Tree is terrifying. What's terrifying about it? The sense of isolation or? Yes. I don't know. I live in downtown LA, which that is terrifying to a lot of other people, but there is a safety in numbers sort of thing. Like I know that if, if I were to get attacked on the street, maybe no one would help me, but people would see me, you know, and I wouldn't, it wouldn't go unnoticed and maybe a police officer might be called. At least there's the possibility of that. But if I'm getting attacked in the desert and no one can hear you scream and no one knows you're there and it's dark and no one can see you, that to me is a level 10 terrifying. Nope. Well, you just handily drew another parallel between the desert and space. In either one, no one can hear you scream. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Is that a real thing? No one can hear you scream in space? Well, yeah, because sound doesn't travel in space. Oh. Yeah. It's a vacuum. Okay. Who's the scientist now? Not me. I said, adjusting my white lab coat. (laughs) What happens when you're away from all that chaos and noise of the city and the relentless light pollution and you're alone with your thoughts and just yourself? What happens? I don't mind being alone with my thoughts. Please don't take this wrong. I do like being alone with my thoughts more now lately than before. Mm. I find a lot of great value in personal time and just like being there. But I can't do that 
in the desert. <laughs> I can do that fine in my apartment. I can do that fine in my car. Okay. I can't do that. Like coming from New Mexico even, when I was in college, I lived far out on a valley road, like way far out, so that it was pretty dark at night. There's something about it that is just quietly unsettling. Maybe not back then, but once I left it and became the city girl that I am now, I don't find comfort in it. I find great fear in it. Maybe because I become acutely aware of how unsafe we are <laughs> as a people. I don't know what it what it is. Well, Maybe that'll settle. Safe to say you don't have the same kind of rejuvenating, inspiring experience of the desert that Tori does. You're like, nope, don't like it. Right? Nope, no thank you. <laughs> the desert heat, I don't like that either. I can go to a city in the desert, like Vegas is in the desert. Like, I don't, I'm not terrified of Vegas. I'm not terrified of the desert. I'm terrified of these empty spaces, which Juarez is. Is like, there are spaces in New Mexico. From the drive from New Mexico to Mexico, there are vast empty spaces and at night when there is no light anything can happen and anything does happen and that scares the shit out of me mm -hmm. why don't you read this from atlantic records promo bio on september 9th 1999 and i'm really enjoying our desert talk so let's keep that on the table okay because this is what the song is at the heart of this song is that dark terrifying space Okay. The bio says, One of the album's most powerful moments comes with Juarez, a song born after Tori read an article in The Guardian, UK, in early 98 about the infamous Mexican border town where several hundred women have been raped and murdered in unsolved incidents over the past decade. As Tori and her band toured through Texas, the songwriter felt the psychic pull of the bloody desert. The voices were loud and clear, and they haunted me until I finished writing it. My mother used to say that if you pray hard enough, the angels will be there for you. Well, what about those women? Didn't they pray hard enough? For the songwriter, Juarez serves as somewhat of a corollary to her timeless me in a gun. Tori chose to write the song from the point of view of the desert because... The desert heard the last breaths that these young women took. The desert heard the breathing of the killers as well. It's the antithesis to me in a gun because that song was very much about the girl's perspective. And this is coming from a perspective that saw both sides. What she's saying, I'm not justifying this at all. When she said that in the earlier quote, I think when you hear the phrase, see both sides, I think it lands and at least it lands in my brain as empathizing with both sides or understanding both sides. But there's a soullessness or a kind of a coldness the desert just literally observed both sides. And I think it's a necessary distinction to make when she says see both sides. Because that's why she felt, I think, in the last quote she had to say, like, not justifying the act. Right. Because it's about observing both sides. And it's just an omniscient observer. But what do you think about that? Why isn't Tori acknowledged for the elements of horror that are so present in her music? The way she describes a desert hearing the breathing of the killers. Yeah. That makes me think of Michael Myers. And when he's kind of like lurking out of frame, you just hear like his slow, steady breathing in the mask. Mm -hmm. mm. But again, like not to be critical of any other artists, but I think quotes like this and ideas like this and themes that Tori explored point to me why she wouldn't have been a good fit for Lilith Fair, let's say. <laughs> and again, like that's not a criticism, but she's an entirely different kind of artist in my opinion, and it doesn't make sense that she was lumped in with those other artists just because she happened to be a woman in the 90s. Truly. Making music at the same time. Yeah, and let's look at also other artists that were her contemporaries that I felt were on par to the style of music that she made, the heart and soul within the music that she made. For example, 
PJ Harvey and Bjork, just two easy ones. I think all three of these women in the 90s were making really interesting, complex music. Bjork and PJ weren't invited to Lilith Fair either. Yeah, that's a good point. And how come no one ever points that out? How come it was made such a big deal in the 90s, such a big deal? (laughs) But how come people, you know, would assume that Tori would be at Lilith Fair, but not PJ and Bjork? You know, I've never heard anyone harass them about it. That is a festival I would have gone to. Why don't you read this from the Charlotte Observer, September 17th, 1999. In preparation for my birthday, Tori Amos said the following. Voices, spirits, and supernatural forces don't spook Tori Amos. She's used to them shaking her awake at night with demands that their song be written. And the songs on her new album, To Venus and Back, are no exception. The voices of women who met violent deaths in the desert town of Juarez, Mexico, summoned Amos while her From the Choir Girl Hotel rolled through Texas. More than 120 women had been found dead around the city since 1993, and Amos said she translated their anguish into the song Juarez, telling their story from the desert's perspective. I was inspired by Juarez on the road, she said, while on tour with Alanis Morissette in August. We were by the border, and I was dragged out of the bunk. The song was grabbing me by the throat, saying, you have to sing the song. It was just clear that the voices were calling me. The desert was obviously the only thing that heard her last breath, and everything started coming after that. The song's distraught melodies, paired with an industrial, almost techno sound, matched the isolation of the desert wasteland. I want to take it back to what you said a few minutes ago about the level of horror in her music, which I interpret to mean as a willingness to deal with really difficult topics Mm -hmm. and kind of go there and it doesn't end with Juarez you know like even the next record really the next Strange Little Girls the sound of 97 Bonnie and Clyde is really you know it's terrifying it's a terrifying song as far as songs go I agree and we could even have kind of a subgrouping of Tory songs that we could call murder ballads I would include Smokey Joe in that Smokey Joe for sure so it's clear that she doesn't shy away from these dark and supernatural forces, as a Charlotte Observer says. But what do you think about what it says here is the song's distraught melodies paired with an industrial, almost techno sound match the isolation of the desert. What do you think about the way it matches and why it sounds like that? I think that's right. The production manages to make it sound cold. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean like kind of detached, not temperature wise, but because it's so tinny sounding mm-hmm. and distorted, yeah. it does sound like a transmission, like we're driving through the desert and like changing the radio station and we're picking something up in the distance that we're not supposed to be listening to. Oh, I love that imagery. And in that way, it kind of reminds me of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like when you watch the original, it just feels gross. And even though it's like a technically well-made and directed film, it looks almost like a snuff film. Like it's grungy and dirty and it has like a documentary feel. And when you watch it, you're like, oh, I feel like I'm not supposed to be watching this. I love the way you phrase that. I love the image that you used for that. And I want to read this quote. I'm going to skip ahead to read this quote from All Music, October 1999, because I think it'll lend perspective to what you just said. And we can talk about that more. On songs like Juarez and Detura, sound seems to be as important as lyrics and melody. They say, Tori says, without question, well, it started to become about how, after working with them, I started to kind of understand as I was composing that I had to take into consideration no different from does this work on the piano or does this riff come from the left hand, that part of the characterization was going to be, okay, what's the perspective on this song? For example, Juarez, I knew, had to come from the voice of the desert. Therefore, sonically, as we started stirring the pot with everybody in there together, It wasn't working with me coming in on the piano. 
Finally, it was as the two or 300 women were mutilated, the engineers looked at me, I looked at them, and it was like, I've got to mutilate the piano. Drummer Matt Chamberlain and Andy Gray, the programmer, once the mutilating of the piano concept was in, then they wanted the violence, the suppressed violence. I would talk about the picture of what had happened. It was a real thing. An actual history of violent assaults against the women in Juarez, they ask. And she says, sure. And everybody would sit there and listen to it, the brutality of it. And yet, because it's from the desert's point of view, there's a timelessness of the desert. There's this base going on like a kiln we really wanted this suppressed track you would hear the music that was coming out of the car of the guys who were gang raping the woman that's what I wanted and the chanting of the guys and then they go on to say and you accomplish that through electronic techniques that mutilate the sonically assuring element of the piano and she says yes but when people talk about this track they're comparing it to I don't know an electronica track but you're confusing your terms here people you're just confused because it's a commentary on the real hardcore misogynistic stuff done in a way that captures them with their pants down, literally mutilating her. So it's interesting that she's drawing a clear line like electronic. It's not dance music. You know, yes, it is like we've sonically used electronics to mutilate the sound, but it's not electronic like dance music. But it's interesting that you said it's like the sound of like picking up a transmission on a radio because they clearly wanted that. They wanted the sound to be coming from the car and that gives it that very unique opening that you don't hear in any other Tori song. This is the kind of thing that reaffirms for me over and over again why I love Tori so much (laughs) and her music. Just like the thought and the craftsmanship that goes into every element of her music and just the fact that story is woven into the music itself, like independent of the lyrics. I just think that's incredible. And it makes me think of like Tallulah even, just like the way it stops and starts as she like learns how to dance. Oh yeah. (laughs) Like the kind of halting structure of it. I just think it's so brilliant. And this is a very different version of that but again like weaving story and intent into the sound of the music itself i just think that's incredible i agree i think that's incredible and what i also find incredible is that there's 400 instances of this you know like imagine the work that went into this one song just the thought like you said the thought the craftsmanship and the work the actual time that went into the song to create the song mm-hmm. and she's how many times she's done that and how you know almost everyone has at least to her a rich and deep history of creation creation story you know yes and i will go back again to my piano teacher mcfuck who i miss <laughs> and think about frequently <laughs> and how when i was getting really into tori or i was really into tori she was incredibly supportive of that and she was willing to say you know just with her knowledge of piano and composition i don't know a lot about her and her music but i can tell that each of these songs has a very distinct identity And they sound very different, even though a lot of them are kind of bare, at least on the surface, and piano vocal only. And I was like, thank you. And also, take that, all you people who claim that all Tory songs sound alike. Are you kidding me? When someone says that, it says so much about them to me, right? I almost write them off completely. Well, what does it say to you about them? (laughs) That you don't listen, that you aren't observant, that you don't understand nuance or subtlety or artistry. Okay, sure, Juarez, no one's going to confuse that with, I don't know, Beauty Queen. No one's going to confuse those two songs. Or Silent All These Years or something, but yeah. Exactly. Even two piano ballads, Silent All These Years and Winter. Yes, it's just her and piano with some strings in, in both. It's really all that it is but they sound nothing alike to me. I can't imagine living in a brain that just lumps those two things together. Although I guess if you're talking about, I don't know, like uh, plant biology versus like bio plant biology, it's just all gonna sound the same to me. (laughs) We're not doing the beekeeper yet. You know, I don't know any of that. So even though 
I don't think that any of her songs sound similar. Like, I, there's a Tori Amos hurdle now that we play every day. And I'll tell you, I have gotten it on the first second every day until today. Today, I got cocky. I listened to the first second and I said, obviously, that's Spring Haze. And I just put it in. It ended up being a sort of fairy tale demo, which I got on the second second. <laughs> so, oh, I got that on the first one. Mm. I was cocky. I wasn't paying too much attention. Right, right. And I just, right, 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 right. This is from the Dallas Observer on September 22nd, 1999. Tori says, it was a different structure as a songwriter. I approached it really differently. Kind of right now, the way that I see the new album is like that there's a satellite orbiting around Venus's heart and that these songs, for me, were just different fragments that were being filmed. Okay, let me stop there. When she says there's this little satellite orbiting around Venus's heart, are you thinking of the heart of the planet Venus, or you're thinking of the heart of the woman Venus, the goddess? Both. But what's the first one that comes to your mind? Not the goddess Venus, but Venus as a stand-in for all women. Uh, I'm thinking of purely the planet, like the satellite orbiting a planet. She says, kind of right now, the way that I see the new album is like there's this satellite orbiting around Venus's heart and that these songs for me were just different fragments that were being filmed, little short films. Juarez is probably the place where you're severed from your heart. It's based on the murders that have happened in Juarez, the 200 to 300 women that have been killed. When I was going through Texas on the last tour, one night I was sort of jolted out of my bunk. It was dark outside and I opened the blinds. It became very clear to me that... I hadn't written it yet. I was just starting to hear it in my head. I knew I had to take the point of view of the desert. It was made very clear by the voice that I needed to hear the last breath of the girl. I needed to hear the violator, the music that they were listening to. I crawled into this space and did a lot of research about that whole thing. That's a place on the record where I started the record with bliss because instead of father who art in heaven, it's father I killed my monkey. It's very much about the control, whether or not it's God the father. That kind of control, especially having done a lot of biblical study of women and their bodies, of the shame, of the division, of the physical and the spiritual. You know what I mean? That kind of concept of even when your father, your human father says to you, you can't go out with that guy. I can't imagine you with that guy. It's like, these are not your bits. Then you go into Juarez, which is when you're really severed from your heart, that you can do that to another person. And then the record moves into different places. But I knew as I was approaching this whole realm of Venus, it got very, as a writer, I got the shit kicked out of me in a sense because I couldn't just address the passionate side of things and the seduction side of things. It's hard to go against your instincts. This interview must have been buried somewhere in my unconscious because I like that I acted like I was coming up with it on my own, calling this album cinematic. And she's basically saying these her short films i'm like oh right that's where i got that from <laughs> oh right 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 oh yes oh yes but this actually makes a lot of sense to me and kind of going back to what we were saying about this cold uncaring vast universe trademark i almost see this camera as kind of capturing these short films as kind of like a sentient ai or something just kind of flying through space and then kind of zooming in on these little vignettes and just recording and like moving on with no commentary almost. I don't know. That's just what comes to mind. You made a comment in the last episode about how it was a shame that Bliss didn't get its own video that wasn't the concert video. And the reason I agreed with you is because we never fully got to explore this idea of this world because she says Bliss starts with killing the imagination and Father I Killed My Monkey. Then you go into some really dark 
places where you're severed from the heart, and then it branches off to other places, which we eventually got with A Thousand Oceans. We did explore that, and a glory of the 80s, but that was a unique video on its own. But we never got that outer space, cold space Venus, like the wind from the beginning of Bliss into this mutilated sound here, into even the clouds descending on the next, like we never got that visualization of this world. It could have been really great. Agreed. And I have to say, too, that this quote sort of brings further clarity into why she chose Juarez as the opening song for this tour. Tell me more. I do think it was a very prescient choice when she was on tour. Like, there were rumblings that Roe v. Wade was going to be overturned, so it took on even more significance and meaning in my opinion in terms of like the disregard that we can have for women that all patriarchal structures can have for women but particularly in the united states i don't know i think there were a lot of things going on for her when she chose this as the opening song i do kind of think of it as being a response to covid and our collective trauma that we'd all come through together particularly with like the refrain of no angel came i just think she was speaking to like the kind of hopelessness and maybe even like the kind of feeling of isolation and the barrenness of a desert that a lot of people felt in quarantine her included perhaps what do you think yeah that's a really great perspective i believe that to be true especially mm -hmm. the isolation of it and the almost horror show of it the song itself is a horror show, and the way she's described her quarantine, the third lockdown in particular that led her to write Ocean to Ocean, seems that it was very difficult on her. Um, why did you read this quote, David? From Alternative Press, October 99. Tori says, I read an article about several hundred women in Juarez, Mexico, who had been taken out to the desert and brutally raped and murdered. When they didn't come home, their brothers would go and look for them, and many times they'd find nothing. Sometimes they'd find a hair barrette or a sock or something they knew was their sister's. The authorities haven't really done anything about it. They get into the serial killer theory. I mean, how much serial can one man indulge in? So, as the song started to develop, I really began taking the voice of the desert, singing in that perspective. It strikes me now, hearing that quote, how much cereal, and she's the article spells it S-E-R-I-A-L, how much cereal can one man indulge in, and just the brutality of it all, and also that that seeps into our collective consciousness. Being that it's from the perspective of the desert, and she described, she's constantly throughout her career described our great mother as a woman, and then there's this woman that is the desert that is powerless to do anything, is relegated to simply be the observer. It's just horrifying that this level of brutality can seep into the collective human consciousness because nothing can be done about it. You know, just from having lived in that border region, you know, all my childhood and into my adult life, there is nothing that's being done about it still, you know, and it's not just one man. I, you know, she said, you know, she says how much cereal can one man indulge in, but it is not just one man. You know, there's implications that it is many, many men, but it's, there's implications that it's also government. It's also the men in the government, you know, it's also police. It's that it goes very deep into the cartel and you know there's so much we did find that article that she read and we are going to link to that in our show notes yeah it's just striking me now how that doesn't go away like that becomes part of our collective map collective topography and this whole country is built on slaughtering people of color and women and it's just another instance of that it's really shitty <laughs>
I think this also speaks to our collective willful ignorance or refusal to see the truth. And I'm also reminded of the sex abuse scandals in the Catholic Church. It was kind of an open secret, but people still denied that it was happening. And the church did everything they could to cover it up and aid and abet these men. And I feel like this quote is reminding me of that. Like it was too much for people to consider that these murders in Juarez were anything other than the work of like one man. The idea that it was like a widespread systemic violence was just like too much. It makes your brain melt. So to kind of like be able to deal with it, we had to tell ourselves the story. Like this has to be the work of one guy because to think otherwise is just like too much for me to bear. But then you do nothing other than allow it to keep continuing to happen. Yeah, it's really gross. And in their own way, and I know we don't necessarily want to have empathy for any violent men and certainly would never excuse their actions, but a lot of men are indoctrinated or traumatized in their own way and are acting out because of whatever standards and expectations of masculinity and everything else that are directed at them. So I don't know. Why didn't you read this from Pulse Magazine, November 99? Juarez was based on the abduction and supposedly the rapes, but finally the murders of many women in Juarez in the last 10 years. I had read articles about them, and then we came close to the border on tour one night, not far from Juarez. I watched as we drove one side of the border, remembering the words of the sisters who had lost their sisters to the desert, and the brothers who have lost their sisters, who would go out and find a ribbon or a fragment and know that their sister is buried somewhere in the desert. In that song, I sing, No Angel Came. I've taken the liberty, because of that quote, David, I've taken the liberty to track through Tori Amos's tour schedule from 1998 to find when must have been the day that she was coming through the Texas border. Sounds like something you would do. It is something I would do. And in 1998, she played in this order, San Antonio, Austin, Houston, and Dallas, and then went on to Tulsa, so you know it wasn't after Dallas. So looking at the map of Texas... She never came close to El Paso. She would have had to go from Las Cruces to El Paso. If she had done Phoenix, any place in Texas, she would have gone right next to Juarez. But she only did Albuquerque that year. So I'm finding it very difficult to assess when technically she would have been there. But I'm looking at this map and the closest she came was when she was in San Antonio. That's the closest she got to Mexico. It is desert terrain between San Antonio and Mexico. It's not technically Juarez, but it's desert terrain between Coahuila and San Antonio. So it probably has that exact same terrifying feeling. And that would have been on after the Albuquerque show that I saw on September 29th, she would have been driving through it. The evening of September 29th is probably when it happened, which was a day off. That's when that song started pulling her out of bed. And that's what I will forever celebrate as the birthday of Juarez. Do you think the seeds of sweet sangria were sown that day too, or that night? Possibly. Because the reference to San Antonio and lyrics like, she's been gone, have you seen her? Mm. The car will drop them at the border, the breaking point. I don't know. seems like there's something there. I wonder if any of those lyrics were holdovers from Juarez, you know, things that didn't fit quite fit into that song. Impossible. I know. That's exciting. This is from Aloha Magazine, November 1999. Her new album is all about passion, about the power that flows from the passion, power that you can use for the best or the worst, like the evil in the song Juarez, which deals with the monsters we turn into when our hearts are broken. It's about the murder of 200 women in a small town at the border of Mexico. When I was touring through Texas, I was really near it, and the story grabbed me. I immediately wrote the song on the bus. The song gives you a different look on the things that I wrote years ago in Me and a Gun, but both songs are about the things that you 
can do when your heart thinks there's no other choice. There's a line in A Thousand Oceans, I've cried a thousand oceans and I would cry a thousand more if that's what it takes to sail you home. If you know you're capable of feeling that for somebody, you know that the body snatchers don't have you yet. That really reminds me of, but I haven't seen Barbados, so I must get out of this. Whatever's happening now, I'm going to get out of it. I have the will because there's something left for me here. You're so right. And I'm reminded of it must be worth losing if it is worth something. Yeah. Where she has looked at that line and said, like, well, even though this is really painful, at least I'm not too numb to, like, feel the loss of this relationship. There's still some of me in there, really. Yeah. You're all about Tallulah today. I'm all about Tallulah. Let's dance, girl. Who knew? (laughs) But interesting to me, too, that she starts by saying that this new album at the time, Venus knew, was all about passion because Pele was about finding her passion in her Mm. words she found it she found it she got it and then choir girl is maybe kind of like a detour after that her processing loss but now this is like okay this is me with my passion entering this new phase of my life as a wife and a woman what am i going to do with that passion or what do these themes look like at this point when i revisit them from this place of found passion yeah and that's that's what venus is maybe all about I'm also struck by what she said, what people can do to each other when their hearts are broken. Mm. And that goes back to what you said, that men are indoctrinated and broken by like the expectations of masculinity too. So it's not, it's not just so black and white. It's not cut and dry. I think that goes to what she said earlier about the song, Seeing Both Sides, which isn't to forgive or make light of the violence that's being done, but... Not to be too glib about it, but to me, that's kind of saying, you know, hurt people hurt people. Yeah. And that she's looking at the perpetrators as well as the victims. And if not exploring what it was, at least acknowledging that they got to this point for a reason. Like something happened to them, too. Yeah, it's not an excuse. You know, you still have to be held accountable. Right. But there is a lineage. There is a history that leads to these things. And I think that's something else that's so brilliant about Tori's music. She's always been willing to explore the light and the dark and to kind of hold the ambivalence of every situation. And no one, including her, is all good or all bad. She's always been about wholeness Mm -hmm. so in that regard i think she's very good at balancing multiple perspectives i agree it's taught me a lot too honestly in my own life and i'm sure you would agree as well for your life just the way she speaks about seeing things like that and the way she really kind of explores that has maybe not in my everyday now but definitely as, as i was growing up encouraged me to do the same you know like about myself and my own dark impulses and my own like relationships mm-hmm. from vh1.com november 99 she says in the song a thousand oceans there is this ferocious commitment to finding this person i don't know who the song is singing about it's different for different people when they hear it she has this depth of love for a daughter or whoever it is i think some of the other songs look to her sometimes for that kind of resilience juarez based on a true story of unsolved murders of women on the mexican border is the other extreme when you're so cut off and severed from any kind of humanity that you can mutilate another person person you've got to be pretty close to soul death to lose your own soul to do that to another person and that's happening right now it's been going on for the last 10 years mm-hmm. in 99 when this quote came out it had been going on for about yeah about 10 15 years already at the border and it's continuing to go on it continues to be ignored and you know it is not something that ever stopped it's a dark dark place i you know clearly see this as the flip side 
to or being connected to me in a gun, as Tori said. But in any way, is Juarez connected to Blood Roses for you? It has not been here to four, but I'm willing to listen. Oh, I don't know. This is just something I'm starting to think about. But they both have kind of this element of mutilation. And I think when she's talked about Blood Roses it's been her mutilation or the narrator's kind of willingness to be degraded and mistreated by someone else and to kind of, in her words, let that happen. And I'm wondering if this is kind of, again, exploring the opposite of that or her seeing in herself the untapped ability to maybe sort of perpetrate that on someone else because we all sort of have that somewhere inside of us. And I think Tori is always about acknowledging our own potential capacity for violence and not sort of like disowning it outright like oh no i could never do anything like that the idea that mutilation i mean the the themes that run through her work you can tell very much what she's interested in and interested in exploring that dark side of the human heart and that it takes a lot of work it takes a lot of examination to come out of that cycle or that spiral and this is why i'm really interested in this quote here at the end where she says you've got to be pretty close to soul death because i understand i don't know i've read journey of souls and i understand like what the idea the writer's idea of what a soul death is you know that when you do such a terrible thing here on this plane in this form how that imprints upon your soul your ethereal soul and how you do have to work through all of that in your journey forever the soul death like if you're that close like if you could do that to someone else how close you must be to soul death to being absolutely unredeemable in the spirit realm having to start from the absolute bottom like how close you are to the bottom rung that's interesting to me the way she phrases that i was part of a discussion and forgive me because i you know This just came to mind and I don't have the quote right in front of me, but the discussion involved an article or a piece of academic writing by someone who had described sexual trauma as soul death or the death of the soul. And one person responded, as a survivor of sexual violence myself, I really take exception to that language because it sounds hopeless and like something that you can't recover from. And someone else responded and said, I'm also a survivor of sexual violence and I really resonate with this language because it feels like it's validating my experience because it speaks to how shattering it is and really just, again, acknowledges like the the scope of what that experience is and it doesn't necessarily to me she was saying also imply hopelessness so just hearing tori use the phrase soul death here in a song that's clearly about sexual violence i think is is worth pointing out because i do believe that phrase has been used to frame that experience so and one of our only responsibilities as people is to try to heal from our own trauma and when you don't do that you usually end up inflicting your trauma on someone else hopefully not in as horrible a way as is depicted in the song but it's possible and that's again i think tori kind of looking at every side of the situation but also kind of how trauma is passed down generationally maybe yeah when you started talking about sexual violence with soul death the definition of soul death is that little pieces of your soul get chipped away the more we ignore or go against our gut instincts and desires and the more we try to appease others instead of following our hearts the more our, of our soul that we lose mm-hmm. and that spiritual deaths happen anytime we go through a traumatic event or lose sight of our true selves that's from powerofpositivity.com that's just like a quick search on that would you agree with that I would, especially because, yeah, I don't know. It seems like very few things happen kind of cataclysmically in one foul swoop. There's kind of like what you just read, a gradual chipping away, especially if we're not vigilant Mm -hmm. about something. You can lose yourself if you're not making an effort to sort of heal 
and recover those missing parts, which is what Tori's music is all about, at least as far as I'm concerned. Why don't you read this from The Quietus on June 19th, 2014. We have extremes happening, don't we? All the girls getting kidnapped in Nigeria. The fact that the world is divided and the religion is a big part of that. And it is men who are in power. Even though you think in the West, women are encouraged to be independent and educated, able to look after themselves and not just marry well, but women are subjugated in all kinds of places in Britain, in America as well. I don't know where it's going. Spoiler alert, it didn't go anywhere good. Nope, still isn't. So far. I found this article from the Yucatan Times called Femicides in Mexico, Impunity and Pain. And it was written this year, April 24th, 2022. And it says, gender violence in the country of Mexico has caused thousands of women to be unable to return home to be with their families. In this context, the National Search Commission revealed that there are 20,148 missing or unaccounted for women in Mexico, most between 15 and 19 years old. The director of Amnesty International Mexico, Edith Olivares Ferreto, stated, Mexico is a country where we have effectively almost 100,000 missing persons. One-fifth are women, and I think it is important to remember that many of those reported missing are later victims of femicide. What 20 years ago we thought was an isolated situation in Ciudad Juarez, Chihuahua, has become a situation in all states. All of Mexico has become a Ciudad Juarez, she added. Olivares Ferreto indicated that Mexican families live in fear of anything happening to their women. In addition, she warned, in Mexico, the women who are most at risk are young women and pointed out that due to the high number of missing women, the exercise of their freedom is violated. The reality is that today in Mexico, this is 2022, the reality is that today in Mexico, a woman alone cannot take a cab, cannot take public transportation, and what is happening is extremely serious. Proof of this is what happened in the investigation of young Debani Escobar whose parents reported her missing. She was found dead and five other missing women were found in the process, all murdered with violence. These women were very young, two 14-years-old, one 15-year-old, one 16-year-old, and one 19-year-old. Dabani Escobar is one of nearly 2,000 women reported missing in the country this year so far, according to federal government figures and the National Search Commission Registry. Um, this is... <laughs> This is a really sad and dark song, and I think we need to explore a little bit more in the line by line. What do you think? Yeah. Since Yanta doesn't have a cover of the song, and we don't have any musicologists on this program, I want to analyze the music as we go through the line by line as well. All right. All right. This is from Unicum Abbey Magazine, October 1999. The interviewer asks, do you sing about your nightmares on the album? And Tori says, Juarez is based on the rape and murder of 300 women in the Mexican desert during the last 10 years. Someday I read about it and almost forgot again. But last year, after a show in Texas, when we were driving very close to the border, I heard the voices of the killed women in my head. When you are able to listen and to switch off all the blabber in your head, then life is talking to you. In that night, I felt like having been very close to that point, I could even hear the music those women had heard before someone cut their throat. These three notes are as important, if not more, than any lyric she's going to utter in this entire song. Do you agree? Tell me why. Not only am I talking about the piano notes, the ding, 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 which are haunting, but also like the casualness of the do, 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 do. 
It just feels like the desert is just carrying about their day. The desert is just minding their business, doing their thing, being the desert. And all of these horrors are about to unfold in that landscape. may sound oddly specific, but there's something in the way the music kind of vibrates that reminds me of being in a truck on a dirt road in those desert communities, in the non-paved roads. You're kind of going up and down and up and down and sort of bouncing around over like bushes and little dirt mounds. It just, there's something about the music, the structure of the music that to me feels like I'm on that desert terrain. What do you think of this bass line? I mean, this is the first time John has recorded with them in the studio on Choir Girl. It was a bunch of different bassists, right? It was different. Or no, it was just George Porter. It was George Porter. But here we've got John Evans, and this is his real first sort of shining moment on this disc. You're right. That always slips my mind because he was such a part of the plug tour. I sometimes kind of forget that he wasn't in the studio for Choir Girl. So you think this was his moment? He was like, I got to bring it for my first (laughs) in-studio contribution. Yeah. That bass needs to be fat. It is fat. It's fat and fuzzy the way I like it. It's fat and fuzzy. Mm -hmm. He does a good job. Yeah. Just a real good job. (laughs) I love you, John. No, do it like you were really doing it on tour. I love you, John. (laughs) I love you, Ash. Pointing back at you, pointing back at you, you pointing back at him. You, you, no, you. You You made the show. You're the best. No. Oh, it was a beautiful moment. Uh, Many of them. They set a scene of, it's like a, for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for me. How she can make the desert sound like the desert with three notes. What do you think? Yeah, there's like a broken music box quality to me. And is this where she mutilated the piano? Yeah, it sounds like the door is open in the car. You know, like when your door is open for too long and then you're, overhead light just starts going ding ding uh-huh. ding and it's just so invasive but it's like a play on that i don't know if that is what her intention was but that to me is it sticks in my head in a way you're right why is that creepy especially if you like get home late at night by yourself and you're like getting out of the car yeah. or, like getting something out of it if it's dark and you leave yeah. the door open and it starts dinging that's worse than just like silence i don't know why Anything. but you're right yeah it's because you're sort of announcing to people where you are that's true in a, in a helpless way like there's nothing you can do about it it's just dinging and it's like alerting people to where you are that's true And it's also those things that you hear in Me and a Gun when she's talking about what's going on in her mind while this is happening and what she's thinking of. You know, she's smelling the biscuits. They're soft and sweet. These things go through your head. Like the idea that this woman is being raped in this car and the guys are standing half in, half out of the car and that door that sound is going on and that's the only thing for her to focus on. It's just really, it paints such a clear picture to me that it ends, it's just haunting to me. So I think these three notes are as important as any lyric we're gonna decipher here today. I think you're right. Thank you. Dropped off the edge again, down in Juarez. Now, are the lyrics from the same perspective as the music? Is it all from the perspective of the desert? This to me is Tori's window into the song. And this connects it to the me and a gun experience. And I think we go back to that later with should have been over for me. 
I think this is her kind of acknowledging that the song is the flip side of her experience, but also that she's still processing this experience. And she thought she was past it somehow, but she's dropping off the edge again into that. Again. Yeah. To me, when she's talking of looking out the window of the bus and being called to the desert, if you've ever driven through Texas or New Mexico or Arizona at night or these really long, barren landscapes, even parts of California where there are no lights, if you're looking out the window, it feels like the earth just disappeared. It's just nothing. It just disappears. Mm -hmm. So there's elements of that for me in there, too. If she's looking out the window of her bus... It could definitely transport her back into that emotional moment. When I heard the song for the first time, I did expect her to say Juarez. Aren't we glad she didn't, though? I wish she had. No. (laughs) Why? It's just... Down in Juarez. For the same reason that I feel really ridiculous if I try to speak with an accent like that. Like, I don't know what's worse. It's not an accent. It's the pronunciation of the word. But you know what I mean. Sometimes as a non-native speaker, I feel like it's condescending to try to approximate. I feel like it's better to just like sort of say it and be like, I know I don't speak Spanish. I'm sorry. It feels almost insulting to try, but maybe it's the opposite. Like maybe you should just put effort in to say saying it more correctly and not be self-conscious about it. I know you don't mean it like that, but that reminds me of this moment in the office. Roll it, Oliver. Um, Let me ask you, is there a term besides Mexican that you prefer something less offensive? Mexican isn't offensive. Well, it has certain connotations. Like what? Like, I don't... Well, I don't know. But what connotations, Michael? No, no, no. Must have no. Meant something. No. Now remember, I'm just, I'm just curious. Honesty. I had an epiphany as I was, because <laughs> I'm learning French lately, and I was embarrassed to speak in class. I was, I'm taking this like online French Zoom class as part of me learning French. I'm also doing all kinds of things to learn French. But as when I'm in that class, that's my time to practice my pronunciation. Mm-hmm. And whenever it comes time for me to speak, I get very nervous and embarrassed. And I'm like, I speak with like a soft voice. And uh-huh. I'm like, you know, it's very questioning. But I don't want to get it wrong in front of a native speaker. But then as soon as I turn my Zoom mic off and it's the other people's turn to go, I'm pronouncing it with them just loud and proud. And I'm like, learning a language is the music musicality of the world and like that's how you get to know other cultures and that's how you get to know sort of like other experiences you know mm-hmm. so i don't think any native speaker would think it was insulting for you to try okay i'm only saying that because i hope that they'll be as kind to me when i'm in france next year because <laughs> i've heard from every french teacher that the french are very particular about their language mm-hmm. they consider it the most beautiful language in the world and you can't get it wrong you better not fuck it up well they're probably right But never feel embarrassed to speak in a native tongue with me, David. Okay. Well, I haven't heard it yet, so (laughs) I deserve (laughs) I don't know. Maybe you should be embarrassed. Let me hear some. Yeah, let me hear it off air later. I feel like a native tongue invader. I think this verse, this line, this moment right here is as shoegaze as Tori Amos will ever get in her career. This is why we're celebrating the music of Juarez today with Mexican shoegaze and dream pop. I love how her vocals are so deeply layered in the mix. You'll never hear this again from Tori Amos right now. Currently, she really mixes herself high. She mixes herself on top of all of the pianos. But here in this moment, I think this is a testament to hearing the music coming from the car. I love it. But unfortunately, Bethy Land on Amazon Reviews does not agree in her review of Tavina Back, dated October 9th, 1999. 
which bears the title No More Bells for Her. I'm sorry, I just don't understand what has happened. What happened to the carefree days of just Tori, her emotions, her piano? Tori Amos's talent and brilliance lies in a simpler time. She doesn't warrant the impersonal droning of machines to drown out the gorgeousness of her music. I miss real instruments in music, real beauty, not the din of industry. As for CD2, yes, we all loved her early music. I did and you did, but let's move on. How many times can a person hear Cornflake Girl since 1994 and still have it mean anything? I'm sorry, Tori has misjudged her loyal following this time. I'm highly disappointed. So she wants the simpler times, but we're over the simpler times. She's confused. She's a dichotomy. She's a cigarette. She's a turtleneck. She's a juxtaposition, and I'd love to meet her. Don't even bat an eye if the eagle cries, the Rasta man says. Okay, I want to address one thing first. One thing? The Rasta man. Yeah, what's he doing here? See, I wonder if, is the Rasta man, I wonder how the Rasta man is connected to the desert because a Rasta, Rastafarian people aren't in Texas, Arizona, Mexico area. The Rasta is a religion created by a Jamaican man named Marcus Garvey. He created it after the crowning of Rastafari Makonan of Ethiopia, also known as Prince Tafari, as King of the King of Lo- and Lords of Lords, which took place in Ethiopia in 1930. It has nothing to do with the desert. So I'm curious if the Rasta man is intentionally Rasta or accidentally. Accidentally? What do you mean? Who is the Rasta man to you, David? And what is he doing in the desert all the way from Jamaica? Well, I'm kind of thinking back to my last journey through the desert (laughs) on the Ocean to Ocean tour when I was driving to Arizona. (laughs) And I know that sounds ridiculous, but when you hit these rest stops, there's such like a wild convergence of people from all kinds of different places. And as you see people wandering into the store to buy their snacks or use a restroom or whatever, I find myself wondering like, what are they doing here? Where are they going? Where did all these people coming from? Are they wondering the same thing about me? So I'm like, maybe this guy is just at like a gas station when they're fueling up and she talks to him. And he's just, you know, talking to her about the desert. Like, I could actually see that happening. Interesting. I want to explore, too, if the Rasta man is a good character or a bad character in this. I, I'm with you, like, that he's just a perhaps a person that just exists in this particular moment in time there. But there's a reason, like the Rasta people from Jamaica, there's a spirituality linked to that because it's Rasta is a religion. You've set it up for me, so I'm going to have to do it. I'm going to have to mention Tallulah again. Please do. (laughs) Please. Well, she sings Jamaica. Do you know what I have done? What did you talk about in the Juarez episode? Tallulah. Tallulah. (laughs) (laughs) She does. She does mention Jamaica and Tallulah. And Jamaica. Do you know? Do you know what I have done? Yeah. And I think she sort of mentions it or she sort of clarifies that that lyric is mourning, turning one's back on kind of an ancient spirituality. Mm. So I'm wondering if that is somehow tied to this Rastafarian character and the idea of soul death and kind of turning one's back on something. Yeah. I don't know. I like that.
This is a little blurb from Entertainment Weekly from their Fall 1999 Greatest Moments in Movies issue. They write, On this double CD, a new studio album, plus live tracks, Amos orbits her usually spacey terrain of piano-piled musings, dark beats, and celestial textures. Juarez, where cowboys and Indians rub elbows with Rastafarians on a fantastical frontier, is the type of fairy tale fodder that makes one want to scream, Earth to Tori! But Amos's songs remain as majestic as they are mysterious. So it could just be that convergence of different characters that you mentioned. It could be as simple as that. Don't even bat an eye if the eagle cries. The Rasta man seems to be very disconnected, at least very aware. This whole verse seems to be setting up the neutrality of the land, the Rasta man. Don't even bat an eye if the eagle cries. Just because the desert likes young girls' flesh. Just because the desert, that's like no big deal. You know, it feels like very no big deal in this verse. Don't even bat an eye if the eagle cries. No big deal. And the Rasta man is a very wise person. I think that the Rasta, again, represents spirituality like it did in Tallulah, like you said. So the wisest and the most spiritual person in this song so far is not necessarily turning a blind eye, just not batting an eye at all. It's just part of the fabric of this land. And to me, this isn't necessarily how he's responding, but he's characterizing the desert Mm -hmm. or maybe describing to the narrator, this is how neutral or even uncaring the desert is. These horrible things happen. And I isn't even batted by the desert itself or by anybody else. People just disappear. And I like to read this too as don't even bat an eye if the eagle cries just because the desert likes young girls' flesh. Mm-hmm. I feel like taking out the part that the Rasta man says, you know how like in a novel <laughs> it'll stop and say, Charles said, and then whatever, that helps me to see that it's comme si, comme ça. Mm-hmm. It's just what it is. And... No angel came. Tori really has it in for the angels, I have to say. We go from where those angels, when you need them and crucified, to no angel came here. To me, that also is connected to Playboy Mommy with can't find those church bells that played when you died. What do you think? I agree. I think that as a minister's daughter, maybe, ingrained in her, I guess that's not anything to do with the narrator. Again, it's the observer. The observer being the desert, the neutral desert, saying no angel came. It's just a point of fact. There maybe is no such thing as angels. Where are your angels when you need them? Well, they're not here. They didn't come. Mm -hmm. Do they exist? Perhaps uh, it just feels like a very eye-opening moment for the preacher's daughter, kind of. You know what I'm saying? I do. And she's trying to reconcile horrible things with what she was taught or what even her mom said in that quote we read from earlier. Like if you just pray, there's kind of like divine assistance available to you. And it's like, well, not always. What are you saying that these women like weren't praying or that they didn't deserve help? Yeah. So there's just sort of like this resignation or need to accept that we don't know why sometimes awful things happen and like no one and nothing intervenes. Yeah, which was really the thread running through Choir Girl. A lot of those interviews had that mm-hmm. that narrative in the in the tone of the interviews that she was doing at that time. Mm-hmm. Like, what did this woman not deserve to have a baby and this one did? Right. It's meaningless. I know that you find that sort of meaninglessness or bleakness, that perspective of that. I know that doesn't resonate with you because we've talked about this before, I think, where it doesn't help you personally to feel like just another cog in a wheel. Mm -hmm. How do you live with this line then, David? 
And I want to talk about young girl's flesh and... Are you asking me to advocate for the angel's choice not to show up? <laughs> yes. Yeah, we need an angel's advocate. <laughs> we need a devil's advocate for the angels. <laughs> I'm curious about this line, young girl's flesh and... Do you think the and is connected to and no angel came? Just because the desert likes young girl's flesh and no angel came? Or is it connected to the flesh and and is there like a implied ellipsis dot 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 the desert likes young girls flesh and more i've always heard it as an implied ellipsis i love the way you put that like there's like a trailing off mm -hmm. like the desert likes young girls flesh and any number of other things that are almost unspeakable yeah that's a great way of saying it i agree with you especially when i see it live and you can see her performing it as it comes to her and it comes to her it seems to come young girls flesh and and then the whole no angel came as a whole new thought just in the way she puts the breath and the way she adjusts on the seat it doesn't seem connected mm -hmm. <laughs> Angel came. And then again, you have the desert sort of doing the do, 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 do. Like it's just another day in the life of the desert. No angels ever come. I don't think you even know what you think you just said. Let's talk about this line because that has transmuted over time to be any number of things. But now she's settled on what I think is the way I think it <laughs> was, should have been written, which is, I don't think you even know what you just said. But it feels too clunky to me. I don't think you even know what you think you just said, simply because there's two instances of the word think. You know that when I'm editing this podcast, if I say one word and then within like the next 20 or 30 seconds, you say that same word or vice versa. I will always cut one of us saying it, that word, even if it's about two different things. Even if I say like, oh my God, that's amazing. And then like we move on to another topic and you say that's amazing. I will cut out one of our amazings because mm -hmm. I can't hear the same word twice. It sticks out like a sore thumb to me. And I don't think you even know what you think you just said to me negates the thought. I can't see the thought. I can't see the forest for the trees, David. <laughs> What do you think? Is this an instance of he said I run and then I laugh and then I run and then I run some more on Father Lucifer? Like oh, for whatever no, reason, live, it always tripped her up to try to I sing know. it the way she did on the album. <laughs> I know. He says I run from him and oh, and then um, I laugh well, and then I, I run. Even, but that's not how it is on the album. That's what she changed it to. Now I've heard it live so much. God. He she says, says I, I run, run and then I run, then I run. Run from him and, and then, then I, I run. run. There's no laugh. Yeah. Right. He says I run and then I she also did that with Tallulah, your favorite song uh. to talk about during the Juarez episode. <laughs> she did that with, uh, she said one plus one is two, but Henry said that it was three. 2001, she would like slow it down, I remember. She was like, I don't know, said so it was, one here I plus am, I guess. one is... Is the yeah. square root of 25? Well, here I am. <laughs> <laughs> I am. <laughs> <laughs> 
don't think you even know what you think you just said. Who is she talking to? The Rust Man? I think so. It feels like that. He's the only one that's talked to her. How can you be so glib about this? Yeah. And I think, again, to tie this back to Choir Girl in kind of, you know, horrible things happening, I think, you know, Tori has said the worst thing you can tell someone is like, well, like God has a plan or everything happens for a reason. That's part of this to me. Like, well, what do you mean? Don't bat an eye and like terrible things happen or bad things happen to good people. Like, I need a little bit more than that. Mm -hmm. So you think this is Tori giving voice to those lines? This is Tori or is this another character? Is this who is speaking these? Because I agree with you who she's talking to and what it says. Yeah. The narrator or Tori. I don't think you even know what you think you just said. I don't think you even know what you think you just said. Even when you take it into the 2022 version, I don't think you even know what you just said, Mm -hmm. which to me is clearer and easier to decipher because what you just said, you couldn't have possibly gotten it right because what you just said sounds so absurd. Mm -hmm. I don't think you even know what you just said, what you're just implying. Or maybe it's so hard for the narrator to understand that it's not even it goes beyond unfeeling it goes beyond uncaring it's not that the desert doesn't care it's just a completely neutral space Mm -hmm. it's just a completely it's like it's really like a cosmic we get into cosmic sort of i don't know um, environmental neutrality almost truths what can the desert do about it So go on and spill your seed. Shake your gun to the Rasta man's head. I can't help but picture the gesture she was doing on this line, live on this last tour. Yeah, I know. She was definitely spilling her seed. Yeah, that became one of our uh, hand signals for 2022 Mm -hmm. tour. This implies to me that the Rasta man is a super important character in the story and that he is somehow connected to the desert itself. And that's why... I wanted to know what you thought about, does she think that the Rasta people are part of this desert? Because that to me makes sense. Like if it were the desert man, then the story makes sense why he's here. Don't even bat an eye if the eagle cries, the desert man says, because she's she's giving the entire desert a voice through this person. And then shake your gun to the Rasta man's head. So you're threatening the desert. The desert man's head would make more sense to me. Or if you believe that that Rasta man is there for spiritual reasons. I don't know. Now that as we sort of progress through the song, I'm not sure if he's a villain or if he's somehow like complicit in what's happening. Oh, interesting. That changes everything in my thought too. Like shake your gun to the Rasta man's head. I'm almost picturing that he kind of knows what's going on. Even if he's not participating, then he is kind of like a resident of this area and has seen some things and maybe he's like shared too much. And now the men who are really like behind all these atrocities are coming to take him out because he talked. I don't know. I like that. It feels really close to what's going on in the song. Because the desert, she must be blessed. The way I take this here in this specific moment after what you just said is go on and shake your gun to the Rasta man's head because the desert, she must be blessed. You can do anything here that you want. The villains would naturally think it's a blessed the person shaking the gun would naturally think the desert must be blessed. You can get away with anything, right? Oh, interesting. I've always sort of seen the word blessed, not as in not being used in the way that we typically would like, oh, the desert is blessed. It can get away with anything and sort of there's a veil kind of drawn. I always thought of mm-hmm. it more as a nod to kind of like a blood sacrifice. Like we are, mm. we are blessing the desert as this blood from these crimes kind of is kind of seeps into the oh. sand and 
and into the cracks of the rocks. You know what I mean? Like she must be blessed. We have to do this because she needs a blessing. Yes. Or she a, needs sacrifice. A, a sacrifice. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Like she must be blessed as a directive, not as an assumption of her personality trait or something. Yeah. Like the desert likes I've young never girls heard it flesh. That way. It's yeah. hungry for this life. Because the desert likes young girls' flesh. She must be blessed. You must bless her. Mm-hmm. Ah, now that makes me want to go back in time for 40 shows and hear it again. Damn it. <laughs> the time I've wasted. Or even if, you know, the Rasta man is yet another sacrifice. If he somehow got wrapped up in this and he ended up being murdered too, it's like just one more. Mm-hmm. His blood is just sort of like running into all all the rest of it. I don't know. And even then, go on and spill your seed is an encouragement. Like it's a truthful encouragement. Do it. Mm. Go on and spill your seed. Shake your gun to the Rasta man's head because the desert, she must be blessed. It's just something that happens. Mm. It needs to happen. That's so hard to hear it that way. Mm. And, and more kind of the same way before. I don't think it holds as much impact here as it does in the first verse, but I think it's just sort of a, an echoing of the structure of the first verse here. Must be blessed and dot, dot, dot. It just feels right to add that here. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really impactful in the first verse. No angel came. Again. Listen, darling, no angel came. How do you feel about that? Listen, darling. I almost feel like there are pockets of such darkness where an angel couldn't travel even if they wanted to. Mm -hmm. Does that make any sense? Yeah. I just feel like we're taking like a detour into another dimension here that's like so severed from what we can comprehend almost that like an angel couldn't even intervene if they wanted to. Yeah. And maybe that even speaks to what she was saying earlier in terms of like, this is what happens when you're severed from your heart. Like you're so far gone that you're just going to surrender to the darkness. To exhibit a minor understanding of what you're saying in my own life, watching people's reaction to downtown LA when they were here for the Tory shows, I'm just so used to the level of homelessness here and the level of mental illness that was walking the streets and drug use that to see downtown LA through the eyes of people who aren't used to it, it really exhibits the idea that no angel came, like an angel wouldn't even, it's not even a thought that an angel would come. Right. And also kind of similarly, like you're used to it, which doesn't excuse it by any means or make it okay, but it's almost like commonplace to you. Right. And that's how the desert must feel. Yeah. Is it time to keep it up? A time to keep it in? There's a time to keep it up, a time to keep it in. I agree. <laughs> Entirely. So is there any way that a time to keep it up isn't sexual? Or like keep it up, all, and we also say like, great job, keep it up, <laughs> meaning like keep doing whatever it is you're doing. I guess it doesn't necessarily have to mean sexual, but it reads as sexual to me or it always has. Oh yeah, it reads as sexual to me, always has too, because it's paired with time to keep it in. There's a time to, especially because like this song is about the rape and torture of women, as she said, there's a time to keep it up and a time to keep it in. I recall one performance that will play in our live section, the Indian is told the cowboy is her friend. She would say that. Mm. So it just feels sexual. But tell me. I think it's both. I think keep it up is both. There's a persistence here, but also a sexual reference. And a time to keep it in to me means secret keeping or like structures and systems in place that allow this kind of violence to keep happening. 
as an open secret. I mean, it could also be truly like what you said earlier too about indoctrination of men and toxic masculinity. There's a time for it. There's a time and place for everything. I guess it doesn't have to be sexual. There is a time and a place for everything. There's a time to keep things up and time to keep things in, Mm. you know, like hold in that rage. There's a time for the rage. There's a time and a place to experience that rage, that acting out, but there's a time not to. Was that close to what you're saying? I think so, yeah. The Indian is told the cowboy is his friend. That's a reference to the, I believe it's a reference to the genocide of the Native Americans Mm -hmm. as the European settlers, colonizers, came and (laughs) stole the land under the guise of being friends, under the guise of being, oh, we're just, the Indian is told the cowboy is his friend. And you know what happened there. Yeah, and maybe this isn't, maybe I shouldn't be drawing so many parallels, but again, like the Catholic Church keeps coming up to me. And this idea that like, what, a priest could never do anything horrible. Like we refuse to believe that. Like these are people who are here for us and to help people. Like we refuse to believe that these good, in quotes, men could do anything to harm a child. Yeah, people work best as perpetrators when you believe they're your friends Mm -hmm. or out for good right? Mm -hmm. In any scenario, I think. And that's how a lot of people get away with things. As big as this in this song, or even as minor as just like, just having a really shitty friend, you know, who gets away with under the guise of being a friend will say really terrible things to you. Mm. You're gonna wear that shirt? I I envy you. You never seem to care how you look. Gosh, (laughs) how liberating that must be. Oh, I wish I had that. How liberating that must be to eat whatever you want and not care what it does to your body. I love that for you. I wish I was lying. I wish I was lying. (laughs) A Time to Keep It Up, Boys. Again, that makes me feel like it's referring to the phallus. Yep. You know that I can breathe even when I cheat. To me, this has resonated in my life in times when I've been lying about something that is so important to keep up the lie. I can act natural even when I'm cheating. I have a poker face, kind of. That's what this line means to me. You know that I can breathe even when I cheat. I feel that. Does that mean anything to you similarly or no? I was going in a completely different direction. So why don't you finish your thought? Were you going to say more? Only that in times of great distress, when my back, not me personally, but when your back, when the desert's back is up against the wall or whoever this line is coming from, when the back is up against the wall, they will always come out of it. They will always survive. They will breathe even when they're cheating. They will get through it somehow. What do you think? I love that. Thank you. I just keep going back to all the references to breath and breathing and last breaths from the quotes that we read about the song Mm -hmm. and specifically Mm -hmm. like the victim's last breath. And without trying to be too graphic or speculating too much about anything, I'm wondering if there's like another window where her personal mean a gun experience is kind of peering into the song here. Because for whatever reason, know that I can breathe even when I cheat. I'm sort of getting like torture happening Mm -hmm. or a perpetrator like toying with the victim and like telling them not to breathe or like a hand clamped over a mouth or even like bringing someone to the edge of death but not quite like I know that's all like really terrible but that's kind of what I just get from these couple of lines after what you said earlier at the very beginning of this line by line that you feel like it's bookended by her own experience Mm -hmm. dropped off the edge again and should have been over for me like this should have been over for me yes (laughs) 
doesn't take too much to convince me that this is peering into her own experience or coming back to her own experience because I've always felt, you know, that I can breathe even when I cheat was from her perspective for some reason. Mm -hmm. It just feels that way to me, especially coming out of the bridge. It's a sound time to change the narrator. You know, it doesn't necessarily need to go back to the desert. And if we agree that the last line is about her, it would be strange to go to the desert to her, but that feels accurate. Mm -hmm. Although it doesn't, I don't get the torture necessarily. I get a survival personally. Like, you know that I can breathe. Somehow I've cheated death. It should have been over for me, but I'm still here. I think you're right. I get that too. You do? But the fact that you brought up what she said in that quote about the victim's last breath, then it feels to me like there's an exchange of breath. Like she took her last breath and this person that is committing this act, you know that I can breathe Mm. even when I cheat. So it feels maybe that's in there too. Angel came. What do you think is her ending perspective with No Angel Came? What is, what is this ending? Because she repeats it over and over again, both in studio and live. Where do we leave with No Angel Came? It's just facts? Yeah, I think, again, it's like a bleak ending and clearly stated, like, this ended horribly and No Angel Came. Wow. And sometimes, for whatever reason, the angels don't show up yeah. for certain people. That's true. Yeah. And screaming out No Angel Came over and over, especially live, but also here in the studio version. Screaming No Angel Came as a way of calling for an angel and still No Angel Coming is very sad. (laughs) It's heartbreaking. Yeah. Just to end with another No Angel Came. It's just like the facts of it all. Yeah. And I certainly didn't appreciate at the time when she would play this on Strange Little Tour immediately following 97 Bonnie and Clyde because clearly No Angel Mm -hmm. Came in that instance either. Meaning you didn't recognize the link or you just didn't like it? I didn't, <laughs> I didn't appreciate that. I didn't that. recognize it. <laughs> okay, just clarifying. Just trying to clarify here. The last No Angel came of any time she performs a song that I'm lucky enough to be in the audience mm. for. Anytime she gets that last No Angel came, even though it was the opening song that was like a marker and a prompt for giant applause. Mm-hmm. It still brings me to a state of almost like I, I'll, I can well up with tears thinking back, not only just thinking back to the 1999-2001 way she would scream that out with just like from the depths of her soul that you felt it meant something else to her. But also the giving up, the fact that it's the last time you're calling for an angel and still no angel came and then you just end, it just gives up, it, you give up. To me, that's the last breath she's talking about in that quote. Uh, and it just ends with always with no angel came and then ending. It's just like, it's, I just, I don't know. It's very hard. I'm hesitant to bring it again, but imagine this paired with Sarah McLaughlin's angel. She's just like taking it easy in the arms of the angel and Tori is screaming that no angel came. It's like maybe, <laughs> maybe not the right festival for me. <laughs> <sighs> What's your favorite lyrical moment, David? I think it's a time to keep it up, a time to keep it in. There's percussion behind that that accents it with like a, an ominous dong dong. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It's a time to keep it up, a time 
It's that. That's my favorite musical moment. I love it. What's your favorite lyrical moment? Both it's all wrapped up together, lyrical and musical? Because I asked lyrical. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you said musical. Well, you know what? We're at a point in time with no yanta to separate the acts. Clearly, I could see why you got confused. I think it's a toss-up. I love the refrain of no angel came. Um, it's mm-hmm. so impactful. But I also like just because the desert likes young girls' flesh and something that we mm-hmm. can't even say. How about you? I have to say, I think that my favorite lyrical moment is you know that I can breathe even when I cheat. There's something to me deeply rooted in self-realization or being aware of oneself there Mm. in an honest way to yourself that I think ties into the whole song. Like the desert is very honest. There is no angel coming for you here that I think ties into the song, ties into my life. But so go on, spill your seed, shake your gut to the rest of men said after 2022 is my favorite part. But musically is the intro, 100%. I love the, I just, I just love the whole, just that mutilated sound running through the whole thing mm-hmm. as she describes it. So yeah. And there's a buried yeah in there. Have you heard the buried yeah? I love this song. I give it 10 out of 10. I give it 20 out of 10, David. Wow. I would give it 30 out of 10 if there were 30 stars available. You go, girl. Well, should we listen to Yanta? Mm. I think we should. But could we listen to Yanta? No, Yanta came. No, Yanta came. Our next entry into our diary of Mexican shoegaze and dream pop comes from Mintfield with their song, Nadie te está perseguendo. very special upcoming New Year's Eve. Thousands of Americans will be spending the night at the last place they might have expected. ABC's Steve Osinsami explains. When the ball drops in New York's Times Square this New Year's Eve, a record number of Americans will be hard at work. More than 800 companies have called in extra employees, more than 3 million in all. Even their bosses will be working the holiday. It's important for the CEO, for the top HR executive, the top customer service executive to be there 
to, to have a presence for the people that have been asked to come in and work on this special night. Almost everyone is preparing for the worst. Potential Y2K computer crashes top the list. In Jersey City, 400 bankers will be ready to take calls from investors. They know they got to be working, and they know that's the priority. And in other cities across the country, tens of thousands of police officers on high alert. Are you listening to this? You did that. You did all that. <laughs> I know. Oh, take me back. The streets were nice and quiet that night. I'm telling you. You know what time it is, David? What time is it? It's time for you to tell me where you think Juarez would go if she could. Okay, Juarez. You'd go to Juarez if you could. You don't like to travel. Oh, probably. You know, I think Juarez would go to the beach. I think she's sick and tired of being a desert for a little while. Just get some waves, some water, splash some suntan lotion on. I think that's right. Yeah. See how the other half lives, you know? I feel like Juarez would go on a meditation retreat because she's all about being neutral. Yeah. She'd go to Switzerland. Who would play Juarez in the film version of To Venus and Back? You go first. In the role of the desert, I would cast either Denai Gurira, who is just this like quiet, calm presence, or in a shocking late in life introduction, I would cast my grandmother, Grandma Shunir. Oh my God. It's never too late to start your acting career. I agree. Can you tell me why? What is it about her? Because for my entire life, I've tried to get my grandmother to say that I'm her favorite grandchild in front of her other grandchildren. They've tried too, and she just won't do it. She's played that hard middle line the whole time. Mm. I'm just imagining our casting session, like you and I are at our table going through our stack of 8x10s, and it's like a bunch of PYTs. We're like, no, no, nope. And then your grandma's face comes up, and we're like, this. Mm. This is the girl. She's the PYT. Yeah, totally. I mean, I feel like the desert, too, is old. I feel like the desert has to be an older lady who is wise, neutral, has seen it all, you know. Maybe even the mom from that movie Volver. Hmm. Yeah, that's what I think. Who would you cast? I like it. I would cast... And don't say Kristen Stewart again. I would cast Kristen Stewart. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My real answer is I would cast, in the role of a Juarez, in the role of desert, Jeanette Goldstein. Mm. Why? She's a chameleon. I, too, feel like she's seen it all and done it all. In a bit of what would now probably be considered problematic casting, she plays a Latina soldier in one of my favorite movies, Aliens. (laughs) Yes, she sure does. And she now owns and operates a small chain of lingerie stores. Oh, interesting. IRL. She's got those cheekbones that I feel Juarez needs to have. That square jaw that comes with age, you know? Mm, Weathered. Whether, yeah, those cheekbones that are just like... When you think of Juarez, you think of a high cheek? I think of a low cheek. (laughs) I think of a world-weary cheek. Like hanging out the bottom of your Daisy Dukes? That kind of low cheek? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I mean. Well, on that note, should we chat with Danny on Chondo? Sure. Let's do it. I have here Mr. Pixie, who is also known as my friend Danny. He grew up in El Paso, which is a sister city for Las Cruces, where I grew up. And it's also a sister city for Juarez, Mexico. Hi, Danny. Hi, friend. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm very excited to talk to somebody who gets the region because Las Cruces, El Paso, Juarez, they're all kind of connected. Would you say? Absolutely, yes. And I feel exactly the same. You know the area. Well, I'm from Las Cruces. You're from El Paso. And we grew up at the same time, right? So we were there at the same time. 
Yes. You're also a Tory fan. Let's not forget that part. You're a huge Tory fan. How long have you been into Tory? Tell us your story. Wow. Well, uh, for quite a while now, but I would say that she came onto my radar first going into my freshman year. And so I had been playing music until that point since I was very young. I started on piano and then on violin later on. And so my eighth grade year into my ninth grade year, I used to hang out with this girl, Megan, who was awesome. And we used to hang out in back of my high school and smoke cigarettes before school. You know, we were bad. Stop. We were bad kids. Yeah. Well, this was like my rebellion phase, right? So I was trying to find new music to listen to because I was such an orc dork. I was like painfully <laughs> nerdy and dorky. So I had kind of fallen into grunge rock. And my friend Megan looked at me one day and she was just like, you play piano. You would love this song, The Black Swan by Tori Amos. And so I was like, oh, yeah, sure. And so after school that day, we went over to her house and she pulled out a cassette tape of the past submission single. Right. And she played for me Black Swan. And I thought it was really beautiful. And that was the first time I'd heard of her. Well, later on, Megan made a mixtape for me. Things like the Smiths and the Pixies and Depeche Mode, all that she was big fans of. And then God was on there. And it scared the shit out of me, to be honest, mm. because it felt subversive toward religion in a way that I hadn't been exposed to. And I thought I was already pretty rebellious listening to like Marilyn Manson or Nine Inch Nails and things like that, right? But this, just the clear statement of like, do you need a woman to look after you kind of made me think like, oh, I've never thought of that perspective. And that seemed to challenge a lot of things that I had believed in my life at that point. How did you discover Juarez? And how do you feel about the song, considering where you live, considering where you grew up? Sure. I'm totally curious about your perspectives on this as well. It literally came out nine days before the Dallas and Back tour started, mm -hmm. which is where I was going to see her for the second time. I saw her on the Plugged tour in Phoenix. But this was like so many different things were going on in my life. And then when I got the track listing, Juarez stood out because it was like, hey, I know Juarez. Mm -hmm. like, but there was that double-edged sword of also knowing that you knew what the subject matter was going to be, right? Because no one was really associating anything good with Juarez at the time. And that's sort of bittersweet because I sort of have to segregate my knowledge of the region. Yeah, and your experience with it, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Like growing up, did you ever go over the border into Mexico? All the time. Yeah, we would go and party in Juarez. Well, yeah, you, of <laughs> yeah. course you would. Even before that, like, I remember going as a kid with my mom. Like, I had family out there. I literally, my mom's mom's sisters all lived out there. And we would always go. And I would go down to the little markets and buy, like, the nickel candy. It was, like, amazing experiences down there. Yeah. And this is not uncommon. You know, we would have kids in school who were coming across the border just to go to school. And then go back and stay with their families. Yeah, it's a, a pretty seamless existence between the two countries in this place. That's always been kind of a thing. So it took me moving out 
of El Paso to kind of realize the unique bubble I had grown up in. Mm -hmm. And I sort of always was a little resentful. And still today, you know, when people ask, oh, you're from El Paso, it must be very dangerous there. And there's all that violence and Juarez. And I'm like, that's not my experience at all. It's sad because, I mean, it is an experience, but it's hard to explain just like the energy that runs through that region. Do you remember by any chance this song about vaccinating your kids that goes uh, two, two, four, and six six months months at this age? It's very wise. Oh, my God. I'm telling you. Yeah, exactly. We are one community. (laughs) Um, Any final thoughts on Juarez? Well, you know, as I was listening to it, just kind of preparing for this, I love the song i don't want that to come across like but like i said it's sort of this idealized idea of what the desert is and this horrific tale about these women who are murdered right Mm -hmm. so mostly what stands out to me and my first impressions when i heard it was the sonic structure because pyro girl was so electronic and dense there's just a lot in there you could really feel that she was trying to experiment with all these new sounds this new world right and in this particular album it seems like she kind of grows into that a little bit more and the album production feels more expansive and sparse so her editing is what strikes me so much because in this particular track The piano is, like, nowhere to be found. Mm -hmm. Just, like, three little tinkle notes, right? Yeah. And they're distorted, and I had read that she was trying to mutilate the piano sound to represent the mutilation of these girls. Also, another striking image was this idea of, like, this was, like, the music blaring out of the cars of the attackers and murderers, you know, like, the last thing that these women hear. And so... I feel bad, but it definitely makes you want to shake your butt, right? Because it's just such a funky song. It is really funky. I agree with that phrasing. And it's also very ominous that just like ding, ding, ding. Right. But for me, thinking like, here's a woman who could literally do anything on the piano, right? Mm -hmm. And to have the wherewithal or the restraint to just say piano's not going to be on this. We're going to give it three notes that, and even in the chord structure, it's one chord really throughout. It's an F minor chord all the way through until the end. She starts like toggling back and forth between that and a B major. But so really all there is to it is this groove and the vocal and everything is just like geared toward creating this atmosphere. So that definitely strikes me is just the maturity to do that in the production. Right. But yeah, why this is a good track. It makes me... I've never come across a Rasta man in El Paso. Well, I don't know we've, are, we've, we've discussed that <laughs> at length, but that is fine. Sometimes different influences come together. <laughs> it really makes me think of... I mean, you know, it does deal with, like, people's misconceptions of where we're from, yeah, right? And true. in Kill Bill, like, Tarantino opens on, like, El Paso, and there's, like, a lone tumbleweed blowing across the desert landscape and, like, an old dilapidated cabin. I really feel that's what some people still think about the region, I right? Agree. But, and in, and in True Beverly Hills, I think, or Big Business, one of those Shelley Long movies, they go to Trace Cruces. They're like trying to get to Trace Cruces. I'm like, it's Las yeah. Cruces. The Three Crosses, oh, not no. Trace Cruces. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so happy to have you on the show, Danny. Please tell people where you, they can find you online. 
Yeah, sure. You can visit my website at mrpixie.com or follow me on Instagram at mrpixie underscore radio. I do a song a day there and I'll dedicate it to people. So if you're having a bad day, you want someone to sing you a song, just DM me, make a request, and I'll put that out in the world for you. Oh, I love it. Mr. Pixie underscore radio. Follow him immediately, and we'll talk again. Your signature song is Josephine, right? I love Josephine, amongst many others, but yes, I would say. Well, we'll talk to you then. Okay. Bye. Bye. This is Playa Triste by Duvi. We'll link to this in our show notes page, songsoftoriamus.com. Sorry, I wasn't expecting company. Did we clean up in here after last time? The floor is sticky. Did you spill your supernova juice or something? I did, but I did redecorate, though. I did repaint the wall. It was splattered with supernova juice. God. Yeah. It was a wild night during the Bliss episode. We didn't really talk about her method for killing her monkey. How do you think she did it? You know what I'm really disappointed in? What? I'm really disappointed in us not having gotten to the bottom of that, how she killed her monkey. And we were really basically, Tori almost handed us a true crime spoof, the possibility of a true crime spoof that I've always wanted to do. And I just didn't take the, I didn't take it. It didn't occur to me either until just now. She said, here, we could have done the best Nancy Grace ripoff yeah. for the last episode, but we didn't do it. We really dropped the ball. Or just like taking the Netflix artwork for making a murder and just put Tori's face on it, but kept the title the Absolutely. same. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. We will do better next time. Do better. When we know better, we do better. This life is a journey. You're always learning. Uh, it's also a highway. Juarez has been performed a total of 124 times in Tori Amos' career, and we are here to play each one of them in chronological order in their full entire performance. Yeah. In their full length. And these recent ones are girthy because it was the are... first song. So, you know, they vamped for quite a while before she could even deign to take the stage. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> Stick with us for this act and we will teach you all the hand gestures that you need to know for the next performance of Juarez. In 1999, when this song 
debuted, it was actually prior to the album's release. Isn't that wild? It's so wild, and it's so wild that I was at that show, and I heard it live before we had heard the song in the studio. It's true. Yeah. It's true you were, and it's true you did. Do you remember the city? Yeah, it was Charlotte. Uh Uh-huh. North Carolina. Do you remember the date? It was like August something, 24th. Yes, David! Two days after her birthday... After her birthday, August 24th, 1999, here she is debuting Juarez. Roll it, Oliver. It was so wild. She started this song and she was like dropped off the edge again. And we were like, what is this? Down to what war as? Okay. We were on the edge of our seats for 10 seconds. I could hardly take it. What is this unidentified song? War is. Thank you. What if she said dropped off the edge again, down and so wait. Wait. But it was still Juarez. You would have been confused. Dropped off the edge again. It was the glory of the 80s. Which actually kind of works. Yeah. Honestly, with the theme of that song. This is a performance from a few days after that. This is August 27th, 1999 in Camden. I mean, we already talked about John's amazing bass work in the song, but the guitar here in this performance is really great. I don't think you even know what you think you just said. So go on, spill your seed, shake your gun to the rock of my play this one because it's in saratoga springs and that's where david is leaving us to and it's the first time on record and considering that i'm looking at the record that she played bliss and then juarez so it was like album order Mm -hmm. and then a few songs later played concertina this is august 29th 1999 in saratoga springs i hope you have a nice life there david
That's a good show. That's my favorite Space Dog, I think. Really? Yes. She knew when she was singing Space Dog in 1999, she was like, your feet are finally on the ground, David, but not for 20-something years. <laughs> for 29 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's what she meant. She was revisiting it. This is a performance from September 3rd, 1999 in Buffalo. This is the infamous Lady with a White Shirt show. But what a great ending on Juarez. one of my favorite performances. This is September 29th, 1999 in Dallas. The opening night of the To Dallas and Back Tour. This is the last time she performed it in 1999 with the band. And incidentally, the last time she performed it with Katen thereby. This is Salt Lake City, Utah, October 10th, 1999. song ended the main set in a shocking display in a stunning spectacle of spectacularity london england october 29th 1999 do you remember the show the solo show the first solo show in years yes opened with me and a gun closed with juarez Drop all the edge again, down in Boris. 
What happened to that arrangement? She beat it oh out. Oh my god. I loved that arrangement. This is the beginning. This is the first this is the debut of this new arrangement where she would pluck the strings of the piano. She would stand up and pluck the strings of the piano while playing the keys. It was great. I had the great fortune to see it later, but yeah. Yeah, she was slamming it. She was slamming it. So good. What a great main set closer. Probably in my top five of all time main set closers. Even though she only did it once? She didn't only do it once. As a closer? She closed with it again in Denver on December 9th, 1999 at the KBCO Benefit Concert. And a few days earlier, she closed with it at Wallingford at Jingle Bell Jam on December 2nd, 1999. Roll that, Oliver. We're going backwards. That was a total of 28 times on this tour, 19 times on five and a half weeks, four times on To Dallas and Back, and five times in the solo tour. Let's move on, shall we? Strange. So strange. I don't find that to be that strange. You don't? No. Do you find it more strange than not knowing that blue isn't red? I find it kind of funny. I find it kind of sad. Mm. Wait, what's that from? The dreams in which I'm dying are the best I've ever had. Oh, right, right, right. On the Strange Little Tour, Tori Amos performed this song six times, and that is a half dozen of the best performances of the whole tour. Mm. Not going to lie. This song was in her prime. This song was aching to come out. Was the arrangement the same? I don't remember. It, yeah. It was? Yeah. It was. It was. And she would open with, so the first time she performed it in 2001, I happened to be there and I seat hopped into the front row. It was my, this, things were different back then. The front row was sold. Like she didn't have the tickets. You could hop, the, so oftentimes, a lot of times, not all the time, but sometimes, occasionally, every once in a while, the seats would go empty. Like some people wouldn't show up. So a bunch of people didn't show up in Austin 2001 on November 2nd 2001 at the Performing Arts Center at Austin Pack and I just sat in the front row and it was fine and nobody cared until these people show up almost at the end of the main set like right before Mina Gun they showed up I think during I don't like Mondays which was right before Mina Gun how dare they at that point they've lost their seat you know How very dare they? How very dare they? If I can get my ticket snatched out from under me on an airplane and I'm there, (laughs) you don't get your seat back. If I've sat in it for more than half the show. Anyhow, she opened with Juarez that night and it was amazing. Roll it, Oliver.
Life-changing. Then what happened? She opened with it again on November 17th, 2001 in Los Angeles at the Will Turn, which I'm sure is what you saw, That's right? correct. I did see it. Roll that. She opened again with it four more times on the European version of the tour. She opened with it in Oberhausen, in London, in Berlin. But we're going to play the last time she played it in 2001. And this is Vienna, Austria on December 14th, 2001, second to the last show. Take your mind back. What do you think? If you're an American playing Juarez before you go into the bathroom and you're an American playing Juarez when you come back out of the bathroom, what do you when you're inside the bathroom playing Juarez? What? European. Oh, my God. <laughs> Good one, David. <laughs> Worth the setup. Worth a very long setup. <laughs> the long, laborious setup. Yeah. No idea where this was going. That joke may not actually make it to the cutting room floor. <laughs> It'll just disappear completely. Ah, take us to Juarez, Scarlet. We're here. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. Thank you. Oh, my God. I've never heard her talk before. That's how she talks. <laughs> she's gorgeous. Well, she's got leaves for hair. Leaves for hair. She's one of those women whose singing voice is very different from her speaking voice. <laughs> right. Thank you. Thank you. On Scarlet's Walk, Tori must perform this song 23 times and then two times the same year in 2003, but the different tour, a lot of pianos. Mm -hmm. Twice on that separate tour. Is there anyone in particular that you'd like to hear, David? What happens if the same thing were to occur on the European leg of Ocean to Ocean, where it goes from being mm -hmm. the staple opener to like she only plays it twice? Oh. What I if think she switches it up? I'm split 50-50 because I know that she might drop that as an opener and start with something else as she has done in the past. Like even the first to second legs of Scarlet's Walk, she changed the closer, you know? Yep. So I know it's possible that it might not be Juarez and I'm leaning toward maybe like she would want to shake it up. But it's also she didn't change 
wampum sort of fairy tale you right. know what i mean so let that be i mean so we're i'm really 50 50 i don't know what's gonna happen and i'm i've long ago learned not to speculate you know let's play the first time she performed it in 2002 this is november 16th in wallingford <laughs> this one november 20th it's the second time she performed it it's in montreal quebec canada and the reason i'm playing it is because i'm learning french This is December 13, 2002 in La Jolla at the RIMAC. Were you there? It was there. Tell me everything. Tell me every memory you have. Everything, David. She did a case of you. Oh, she sure did. Towards the end. Yep. She did Abbey Road, a rare performance, a very rare performance of Abbey Road. Where she changed all the words. <laughs> did basically. she? Well, yeah, she changed the whole second verse, right? It was a different song. She changed it to Abbey Highway. <laughs> this was also a show where I sent a CD backstage to have signed for the guy I was dating at the time. And I was very pleased with myself to be able to do that. And he responded by breaking up with me. <laughs> really? I mean, not because of that. Not like immediately. Like like I handed it to him and he was like, this is over. But like pretty much. You know, when you reveal something that you love to someone deeply, like that's their time to run a lot of times. He was a big Tory fan. Was he? Yes. I'm sorry that happened to you, David. And did you get the CD back? No. And can I have it? Well, it was personalized. Oh. So what was I going to do with it? I'll just scratch out the name and yeah. keep the rest as if it were written. <laughs> to me <laughs> shame 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 girls got I, none. I got none okay this performance because i'm learning french this is Torimus performing juarez not in french but in english but in france on february 4th 2003 at luzanith 
I have to play this performance because she took Juarez as close to Juarez as she could. This is April 21st, 2003 in Albuquerque, New Mexico at the Kiva Auditorium. And yes, I was there. Stunning, stunning show, stunning performance. Everything about this is tremendous. Thank you. This is the last time she performed it on the 2003 Lot of Pianos tour. This is August 20th in Columbus, Ohio. knows when she's done when that's the last performance of a song for a tour she's like you know what no more yeah i do think she does know you that. do like if something yeah if something really peaks she doesn't perform it again for example crucify in minneapolis on native invader i mean she had been jamming on crucify for a lot of the european tour she performed an incredible performance in saint paul on opening night of the u.s tour and then only did it two more times after that for the mm. rest of the tour so I think she knows. She did not perform the song in 2005 whatsoever, but she did bring it back 20 times in 2007. To be fair, she sound checked it. Oh, she did sound check it in 2005 and said, nope. And I hate to gloat because it was really a battle. It was really me requesting Hotel 05 and Barry requesting Juarez 05. And it became very apparent by San Diego that Tori was only going to be able to work up one of them. And it was a battle to the death. And I won. So I'm not upset that Juarez didn't get played because if she'd continued to sound check that, she might not have given us Hotel Solo. Keep checking. Check back later. Mommy, mommy, why is she mispronouncing that word? <laughs> 2007, she performed all 20 performances as Clide. Clide. Sister Clitorides Clide. Sister Clitorides Clide Amos. What are that doll's last names? Have we talked about this? No, we haven't. I don't know how this has never <laughs> come up before. <laughs> Clitorides Amos? Uh, is that her name? I think so. Oh my God. <laughs> Clitorides Amos. Clyde. Pip Jones. She's like, I know, it's disappointing, but... Pip Holly. It's Pip Holly. <laughs> Pip Holly. Aren't you going to ask me who Pip Holly is? Aren't you going to ask me who Pip Holly is? <laughs> Pip, 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 Pip. <laughs> okay, in 2007, she performed it as Clyde, who is your favorite doll, I know for sure. What are you basing this on? I don't know, because you like me and I am Clyde. Okay, that's true. I do like you. Oh, you You're do? so shy. Your hair is in your face and you're like, stop it. Don't look at me. This is the first time she performed it in Bratislava, Slovakia on June 22nd, 2007 at Incheba Hall. <laughs> 
How many times do you think Clyde performed at all? 20. She performed actually 22 times, David. <gasps> so only two of those times did she not perform Juarez, and it was in Paris and Munich, her first two shows. Oh. But once she hit in Bratislava, Slovakia, never performed a set without Juarez in it ever. Never seen was. Can we just agree that Clyde was Little Earthquake's territory? Or let's say Young Tory. Yeah, Young Tory, for sure. Yeah. This is the final time she performed Juarez in 2007 in Santa Barbara at the Arlington Theater on December 13th. You were there, right? Yeah. I went backstage that day. You did? Does Tori know? I did. I, no, but do, please don't tell her. <laughs> I was part of the VIP posse, and I have the beanie to prove it. And actually, technically, the beanie is right here on my desk. Oh, my God. I did a Zoom call with John and Peter when we were planning our tour, and I put the beanie on. You know we called you guys the beanie beanies, right? You did? Mm-hmm. We're like, oh, it's the VIP you. beanie meanies. Just kidding. No one did that. Our group chat's called VIP Posse with a capital P, VIP Posse. Get it? Okay. Anyway. What did you think of 2007 Juarez? It was a delight to hear it again with the band after it took a few years off for sure. I do think, and we've kind of talked about this, that it makes sense that it was a Clyde song because there was kind of a thread of sexual violence going through her set. And we think that Clyde is kind of representative of Young Tory or Little Earthquakes era Tory, perhaps. So I think that makes sense for the song to belong to her. What do you think? I agree with you. I agree with you a thousand percent. Say it again, Sam. Who else would it have belonged to? Pip. No. Tori? Oh, yeah, Tori doll? Sure. No, Pip for sure. I like that you're so primed to just say no to whatever I offer. <laughs> you're like, no, wait, that sounds right. <laughs> well, no, it had nothing to do with that it was you saying anything. It's just that it was so perfectly and clearly Clyde's song that I could never take it and give it to someone else. But mm-hmm. if I had to, it would be, of course be Pip. You're right. But that's why my initial reaction was no. <laughs> anyway... She did not perform the song in 2008 in Dranitor, but she did perform it four times in 2009, and they all were sinful, but also attractive. And when you see somebody that is attractive to you, you're sinning. You're just sinning. Do you think there's anybody out there who listens to the show that waits for me to say that so they can turn off the show? Ah, he said it. That's all they're waiting for? Yeah, like they're listening just for that. Mm. Okay. This is the first time she performed it in Austin, Texas, 2009, on July 25th, 2009. And it was in the encore, second to last song of the night. Between Raspberry Swirl and Big Wheel. loves this song in texas Mm -hmm. well like you said that's kind of as close as she can get so yeah it's really close 
This is the last time she performed it with the band in the first iteration of the band. This is October. Well, I guess technically the second iteration of the yeah. band. Well, technically the third That's iteration true. of the band. <laughs> Keep going. There's been four iterations of the band. If you count 98 Plugged with Matt, John, and Caton. Iteration two is just Matt and John. Iteration three is Matt, John, and Mac Aladdin. Iteration four is Matt, John, Dan Phelps. Iteration five then goes back to iteration two, two which was yeah. just Matt and John. And then iteration six is John and Ash. Mm-hmm. You're ridiculous. You know that? I know. I can't believe you just put us all through that. Just to reiterate the iterations. This is her performing on October 9th, 2009 with Matt and John in Zabrze, Poland. Elise taught me how to say that word. She did. Yeah, and I said it on the air, and someone was like, that's not how you say it. I knew that was going to happen. The French and the Polish, they fight all the time. Yeah. Elise is also like, (laughs) it's pronounced (laughs) I-E. All right. This song did not come out to play in 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, but it did come out one time in 2017 in Los Angeles on the last show. The Native Invader Tour. Shay writes in her notes, I like to think that I manifested this into existence. I wanted this song so badly, though I believed it was an unrealistic dream. Even the boys I told in the bar before the show laughed a little when I mentioned it being on my want list. Don't laugh at Shay. But good Lord, I was so happy they were wrong. And it's such a beautiful performance. And I couldn't believe I was there to experience it. It 
it was really great performance. It honestly. was. And there is a weird thing that has happened a couple times where a song that has been absent for a long time randomly shows up at the last show of a tour and then yeah. is a staple yeah, yeah, yeah. on the next tour. Give me another example. The Waitress. You're right. She didn't play it for all of Do Drop In and then it came in there at the end and next thing we knew, Unplugged, every night. Yeah, it's like it kind of arrested her and like captivated her. And yeah. Like that's what she spent the entire year off thinking about. Mm-hmm. About bad service and restaurants. Yeah, yeah, or about that song in particular is what I meant. <laughs> okay. uh, Duh. So does that mean then by your algorithm that Jamaica Inn will become a staple on the next leg of Ocean Ocean? Yeah. I hope so. It's ocean themed. With a band though. It is ocean themed. It was really good perform. I'm sorry. I'm a Jamaica Inn convert. Anyhow, this song did become a staple in 2022. So far, we are betwixt two eras, <laughs> era part one and era part two. But she's played it 40 times so far at every single show on the 22 tour, both in the UK and the United States. And here's the very first one. This is London One. I just want to show the growth because, first of all, it was a super surprise to hear it as an opener. Yeah, tell us what that felt like to have no idea what the format of the sets was going to be or the opener. It was shocking. Like, it wasn't until night two that I realized it was going to always be the constant opener. I thought, okay, like, this is a great opener and I hope she keeps it. But, like, I didn't know she was experimenting or whatever. You know, some people say it's because she had been reminded that this is, like, a kind of rare song, even though at 84 performances before that, it's not that rare. But it deserved to get a polish. It deserved to get a shine. And it deserved to be at the top of the list. I love this song. I think it's just something that she could attack easily. It's three notes. And then she can, like, fiddle around however she wants. It's easy to play, so she doesn't have to worry about, like, being too impressive after five years. You know, she could just come out there and be comfortable in the first song. I don't know. It felt right. What do you think? I'm not going to lie to you. I get a little emotional when it starts. Oh, yeah. In the 2022 version? Yeah, the 2022 version. Not necessarily because of the content of the song, but just, like, the lights go out and, like, the kind of programming starts before the live drumming, you know, and the gong. Like, it really Mm -hmm. feels impactful. And then when Ash kicks in, it's just, like, really powerful. And even though it's a different band lineup, there's still something nostalgic about it for me because it had been so long since we'd seen her with the band. It's just like, oh, my God, this is happening. Yeah, it's uh, iteration six. Yes, I love a six iteration. Uh, It's technically iteration seven because we forgot the one show where Mac Aladdin and Dan Phelps played together like in the same show. So that's technically we could call that like 4.5. Well, and we can start adding the dolls like the band was Clyde, (laughs) Dan Phelps. and (laughs) Now you've gone too far. uh, David? Um, No, here's London 1, March 11, 
Here she is performing Juarez in Cincinnati on May 24th, 2022. Here she is performing it in Madison on May 28th, 2022, a very special show. Last time she performed it at the end of the tour, this is LA 3 at the Orpheum Theater on June 17, 2022. Roll it, Oliver. That's the end? What do you think, David? I love it. Are you a Juarez fan? Huge. Stan. Huge. Well, then get out of the lounge, David. I'm gone. Uh, it, was, it was a pleasure having you here, though. I'm just going to stay and listen to some more Gloria Trevi. Is that how you say goodbye to guests? <laughs> get out! It was a pleasure having get you. Get out! I hope you enjoyed your stay. I hope you enjoyed, but don't come back. See you next week. Disney-level service. <laughs> it's 9 p.m. Get out. <laughs> we hope you've enjoyed your visit to the AMOS Live Lounge. Well, we did it, David. We did it. 
again. We always do it. Oops. We did it again. <laughs> this is a Whopper. I know. I have like char grill marks on me from doing it. Mm. It was a hot one. You sure do. <laughs> you look delicious. We grilled the song and we got grilled by the song, I think. If you like what we do, please subscribe to us on all our social media platforms. That's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Songs of Tori Amos. You can email us, songsoftoryamos at gmail.com. You can call us, 323-296-9955, and leave us a hot voicemail. But if you really like us and really want to support us, head over to patreon.com slash songsoftoryamos and become a supporter today. We have plenty of audio content at all different levels for you to, I guess, waste your day. Spend your day, not waste your day. Spend your day. Spend your day just listening to us. Uh, you know what? We try to do a lot, but we can't think of everything. You know what I'm upset about? The fact that we didn't start the Tori Amos hurdle. Oh, yeah. Honestly, I'm really upset about that. But I'm glad someone did so we can play it. <laughs> no, me too. And honestly, if we had started the Tori Amos hurdle, that's where my head would be. And none of these episodes would get done because I'd be like refining the hurdle right now. It's true. People would be like clamoring for the episodes and you'd be like, I wasn't thinking. My head was in the hurdle my head was in the hurdle <laughs> the hurdle's amazing please find the hurdle and play the hurdle the hurdle's fun you heard but don't forget our app sugar s-u-g-r where you can find all of our podcasts all aggregated to one place and then you can look back at the old wills and wants game <laughs> i need you to insert the woman screeching sugar every time we say it sugar <laughs> We still need to do our commercial, David. Okay, yeah. No, we absolutely should. But we'll do it another time, yeah? Yeah, not today. What was your favorite moment of Juarez, the episode? Um, I think kind of really digging into the production and the storytelling that's present in the production and all those choices they made in the studio. I could listen to and talk about stuff like that all day long. How about you? Same. I love it. I love just dissecting the music for this particular episode because the music is so unique. It's like such a unique entry into our catalog. Mm -hmm. So it was really fun. Good job, David. You too. Proud of you. Thanks. Proud of you, girl. Appreciate you. This is the last episode that we're releasing before you move to Saratoga Springs. So am I going to have to find a new co-host? No. Why? But you're moving. You're just going to fly back and forth to LA to record? Yeah, I'm going to do it like Ryan Seacrest. Okay, great. Okay, yeah. so then I'll see you as soon as I get back from Macy Rodman tour. Great. I'll see you in LA ready to record Concertina. Yeah, if there's anything worth flying back for, that's it. Okay, great. I'll see you then. Cloud descending and so is my plane. Bye. Bye.
And is it true that devils end up like you? So tired, you don't know how she came. I said, I'm she. Drive All Night is a production of the Sideways Society. For more information and links to things mentioned in this episode, please visit us online at songsoftoriamis.com.